Listeners, start your engines. Detours, episode 34. Say, do you know how I got this podcast? I started an account in Libsyn, and I keep it going every month. <laughs> Franchise Detours, episode 34, Rob here. There are some episodes that you just know going into it, there is an insurmountable amount of pressure, and at a certain point, you just have to embrace, let's just have a fun conversation about a movie that's way too dense then we have uh, to cover in the allotted time, and you just have fun with it. And this is definitely one of those episodes. On this episode, as we continue our mega series through Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight trilogy, we move into 2008's The Dark Knight. Perhaps you've heard of it. Uh, on this episode, Darren Lundberg of Nostalgicast joins me to dig into that film. We will talk about how the film dealt with Heath Ledger's untimely passing how it builds on what the the foundation that Batman Begins left, whether or not it lives up to the reputation of the past 14 years, I guess, at this point, uh, and what it sets up for The Dark Knight Rises. As always, you can find more episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, and other podcatchers, as well as CrookedTable.com. Go ahead and give us a rating and review wherever you're listening to this. For now, let's listen to a little bit of the trailer and then jump into our conversation about The Dark Knight. ago, these uh, cops and lawyers wouldn't dare cross any of you. I mean, what happened? So what are you proposing? It's simple. Kill the Batman. <laughs> Here's my card. Bruce, this is Harvey Dent. Rachel's told me everything about you. I certainly hope not. You once told me that we'd be together. Did you mean it? Bruce, don't make me your only hope for a normal life. You're Alfred, right? That's right, sir. Any psychotic ex-boyfriends I should be aware of? Oh, you have no idea. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> We're tonight's entertainment. Well, hello, beautiful. You look nervous. I've seen now what would have to become to stop men like him. The night is darkest just before the dawn. And I promise you, the dawn is coming. And here we go. This city deserves a better class of criminal. I'm gonna give it to him. No! <laughs> You'll see. I'll show you. You either die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. 
in the back, pod, sir? In the middle of the day, Alfred? Not very subtle. The Lamborghini, then. Much more subtle. Welcome to Franchise Detours, where we believe no movie series travels in a straight line. This episode, we are hopping onto the Bat Pod, which we'll, we will get into that thing later. <laughs> um, <laughs> for our second trip to Gotham City, uh, this is the second episode of our Dark Knight trilogy. And of course, we're talking about 2008's The Dark Knight, directed as all three of these films are by Christopher Nolan. And I am honored to welcome to Franchise Detours, Darren Lundberg of Nostalgia Cast. Welcome. Thank you for having me on for, especially for this movie. It's a little intimidating. <laughs> so, Absolutely. Yeah. Lots, lots to chat about. Yeah. Yeah. Same. So I, we were talking just, just before record. I'm like, uh, I need to, we need to like come up with some kind of structure because otherwise <laughs> it's just going to be like, wasn't that cool? I know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which it'll be really easy for this conversation to devolve into that. Uh, right. But tell people a little bit about Nostalgia Cast and what you guys have been doing over there. Well, uh, again, my friend, uh, I think this is the second time I've been on, like, I think, and again, I'm honored because I was the first, I believe for your, when you rebranded as close watch, we talked about field of dreams, right? Yeah. And so I'm again, very, very honored to come back and talk with you, but it's, it's basically nothing's changed since then. It's just still me and my best, uh, childhood friend, Johnny. We just, we take all these movies from our childhoods and we, we look at, uh, nostalgic cast, obviously, but we look at these movies that we liked as kids, see if they hold up as adults. This season we're doing... Johnny had the crazy idea instead of doing like little scene movies from the eighties that we vaguely remember, like how about we do like movies from the nineties? Like that's when we really cut our teeth on on film and became the movie buffs we are today. So this season we're doing just plain nineties movies that we love. And we've got like a great lineup of guests, uh, Robert, you might've been making an appearance a little bit later. Um, but you know, we've got a bunch of great guests and just chatting about these movies and it's just these great conversations that we've had so far about movies that we love instead of trying to find things that we love about it. Like we unabashedly love these things. And so it's, it's, it's kind of a change up from our usual um, recording uh, sessions. But uh, again, like the guests that we've had and the conversations we've had, they're so enriching. It's been so great so far. And so we're, we're just released. We've got maybe like eight episodes <laughs> recorded. We've only released two nice. of them. <laughs> so <laughs> just a lot to look forward to, but yeah, nostalgia cast. We're, we're trying to still trying to make it work and get, get our name out there. But, <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. People check that out. Uh, as we talked about on your show, I, I came on for an American tale like last yeah. last year. Uh, I am a baby of the 80s. So the 90s is the decade that I became a cinephile as yeah. well. So that's I'm definitely looking forward to seeing what you guys uh, what you guys cover. Speaking of the 90s. Spy, uh, Batman was huge in the 90s. You know, that yeah. first movie came out just before the 90s started. What is your history with this character, uh, you know, going into The Dark Knight? Well, I'm not like a huge comic book reader. I didn't spend a whole like hours and hours of my days reading comic books. But if I did sit down and read a comic book, it was a Batman comic book. The, you know, you have Superman and Spider-Man, which are probably secondary favorites, but Batman was always the interesting, you know, that he was dark. And so that was kind of attractive for you as a kid. Like, why would this guy dress up and, and look like this and fight crime and punch criminals, that kind of thing. But, you know, as you get older, you realize that Bruce Wayne is this damaged, you know, psychologically he's damaged and he's broken and he's trying to piece his life back together and trying to make others you know, and help and improve other people's lives by not having the same thing happen to them that happened to him. But he's always walking this knife edge of actually becoming one of those criminals. Like, does he kill? Does he not kill? Like how far does he go 
you know, for the, in the name of justice, that kind of thing. Um, so that's very, very interesting as far as comic book characters go. And obviously you have Superman, like I said, who's the paragon of righteousness. And so it's fun watching him and Spider-Man who you feel like that's you, you know, you're the nerd growing up. And so just be able to don a superhero costume and quip with the bad guys and you know, get the girl that that's very attractive as like a male empowerment fantasy, which is all comic book, uh, comic book truly are. But Batman again is the one that's the most fascinating because he's just so interesting the way you can look at all the psychology of it. And then, uh, you know, real, yeah, real long story. Like I remember, in 89, which you already mentioned, Robert, the the Tim Burton Batman. Right. Um, and I've I mentioned this on on our podcast before. We covered Batman for, for an episode. But it's one of those movies, like I saw it in New York. And I don't know if you've ever been to New York or been to a place that's like rowdy uh, theaters. When you watch a movie in a crowded Brooklyn theater at 12 o'clock at night, they cheer everything. And so I remember walking out of that first Batman thinking I'd seen the greatest movie of all time just because you, you, you come out on a high. Um, and it was only later because you, I was what, 12, 13 at the time. And it's, it's all about the aesthetics. It's all about the look of it. It's all, but it was only later that I realized that this isn't really the, the Batman that I love, um, as from a kid. I mean, he's got all the gadgets and doing cool stuff, but where's the emotion? Like, where's the heart? Like, where is, you know, the, the, the empathizing with what Bruce Wayne's going up against? I think, and this is maybe controversial, but those the '90s Batman movies, I think, were more just about the look and the aesthetics, and not really about the heart. Because in the '90s, a lot of people didn't treat comic books as seriously as we do now. Absolutely. Um, but you know, again, I, I like the aesthetics, and I, I just think that the it just it it wasn't there, like the character wise. Then when you had Batman Returns, the the problem with those Batman movies, Returns and Forever and Batman and Robin, is it seems like they just threw the 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 villains in there and then he had batman kind of bounce off him but it was more like about the villains you know what i mean and so it becomes like stunt casting like arnold yeah. schwarzenegger's playing the new batman villain what right right and it's like well what's yeah. the point like how does this tie in with what the story being told yeah. i think they just they wanted oh here's schwarzenegger who can we cast him as let's get him as mr freeze i don't know if that's exactly <laughs> how the process of it but it even batman right. Yeah, even Batman Returns, which is probably the best of those initial films, it's one of the worst as far as not following the comics at all. Like, there's nothing yeah. in Batman Returns that I recognize from the Batman characters. It's it's basically, as a kid, it's basically just Tim Burton saying, oh, Catwoman? I'll have cats make her into a suit. Or the <laughs> She's penguin. supernatural, right? Yeah, yeah. The penguin, he'll be an actual penguin raised by penguins. And so it's like, well, that's it's a Tim Burton movie, and that's great. Exactly. But it's it's like the Batman is defined by those villains. It's like and it's interesting because you have Penguin who's like the abandoned rich kid, um, who's kind of orphaned. You have Catwoman who's like the the vengeful spirit that goes out and you know wreaks havoc and gets you know gets her jollies off. You have the Christopher Walken character who's the again the billionaire who's not being responsive. So it's it's interesting, but Batman isn't really a character. He's only seen through the eyes of those characters. So it's an interesting movie. And then Batman, you know, obviously he's a killer <laughs> in those yeah. first two movies, which, you know, if you look at the comic book history, like when Bob Kane and Bill Finger first created the character, he did kill people. He carried a gun. It was only after a matter of time that they adopted the, uh, you know, the stigma of he doesn't kill, he doesn't use guns because, and it's only smart because why would he do that if he's a victim of crime, right? right. But then like the movie's. You know, they never set the standard that, that Batman shouldn't kill. They never set that that guideline, and so it doesn't really bother me. But it was just weird that Batman Forever of all movies, that's the movie where all of a sudden it's like, oh, 
there's the hero Batman that I recognized as a kid. Why am I seeing this, recognizing this character for the first time in this movie? Like with all the quips and the, you know, and the, oh, the Bat credit card came later, but, you know, Jim Carrey kind of goofing off. Why is the hero that I've always wanted to see in this movie that's not very good? I don't know if that makes any sense. No, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and so Batman and Robin, I'm, I'm a little lighter on Batman and Robin now. When I saw it at the time, it made me so angry that I couldn't even talk about it. But it's, you know, there's been worse comic book movies and more cynical, uh, uh, embarrassing comic book movies since then. But by the time Batman Begins came out, it was just one of those things where I was so nervous about it because this is a character that I loved and nobody had gotten it like right to the point where I needed it. And then the casting of, uh, well, the hiring of Christopher Nolan after Memento, which is one of my favorite movies uh, to start off the 2000s. Insomnia yep. is obviously yeah. good. Um, Christian Bale, like after seeing him in American Psycho, when they announced Christian Bale as Bruce Wayne, I thought, that's perfect. <laughs> He's if, if you're going to play Batman as or Bruce Wayne as this psychologically tormented, broken person, you want to get somebody like Christian Bale in there to do it. And I was excited by that. And obviously with the Superman stunt casting, like Michael Caine and Gary Oldman and Morgan Freeman, that obviously raised my uh, expectations. They got Hans Zimmer, who's my favorite composer. So I was like, this is like, what's going on? Like (laughs) they're raising my expectations. And I remember sitting down, getting so excited, sitting down in the theater with Batman Begins for Batman Begins. We had a bunch of uh, friends that knew I was excited about it, sat next to my wife. The movie's playing. My wife says after it was over that she could feel my heart beating like pounding in my chest in this in her chair because from the opening frames and the opening notes of that Zimmer uh, James Newton Howard score I just think they got the Batman Bruce Wayne that I'd always wanted to see and always felt that they never got and I felt for the first time other than the you know the animated series which is probably the perfect uh, incapacitation of that character but in live action this is the first time that and we'll, you know, we'll talk about it, obviously, but Nolan, like focusing on Bruce Wayne as a character, having all the other characters, like the theme of fear being a part of that. Oh, that's what we'll bring Scarecrow into it. So the villains were born from the character as opposed to Batman just, you know, bouncing off the stunt casting. So exactly every, every frame of Batman Begins, just everything about it worked and to the point where at the end, I was like, oh my gosh, when the credits started, they did it. And they got it so well. Again, this is me. I think this is the nerdiest they ever got for a movie. I went to go see that thing seven times in a the theater. It, like I, I would talk about it constantly and we would bring friends and I would be talking about it at other points. My wife would say, just, just go and watch the movie. I'll stay here with the kids. You go and watch it. And so <laughs> yeah. again, I went, it was, it's the equivalent of chasing a drug, I guess you could say, as far as movies. I, it just, it hit all the notes that I needed and I just got so addicted to it. I was so grateful that somebody like pulled these images and these feelings that I had ever since I was a kid. Again, I could go on and on and on about all the things <laughs> that they got so right. But I just think the tone yeah. and the emotion and just everything about it just works so well. If there's, if there's a flaw with Batman Begins, and it, again, we'll talk about it for The Dark Knight, but Christopher Nolan has done interviews where he says, oh, well, I needed a big action climax, you know, because that's how all comic book movies need to end. And it's like, no, Chris, it's not, <laughs> you know, yeah. and he, he gets it. that by here. Yeah. Yeah. By this yeah. movie, he figures it out how to balance. 
because he's able to do like again it's you've i've made a success now i've got even more confidence and warner brothers is more co- so i'm going to make the movie that i so this is a christopher nolan movie but like batman begins i think it's it's really 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 solid for the first half and then as soon as the comic book the comic booky mm-hmm. elements start coming into it that's when it gets a little weaker right. um but it's still strong. It still ends on a strong, you know, having that Joker card and having, you know, Gordon introduce the theme of, well, escalation and, it, or even the Rachel Dawes character, how she's like, you know, I can't be with you because this is your mission. Like the Bruce Wayne is the mask and Batman is the truth. They nailed every single aspect of the Batman character that they needed to nail, I think, as opposed to Batman Returns that started off where you kind of feel like, you have to know the history of the character in order to be involved in the story being told. Um, Batman Begins is different because it sets everything up. So then when the Dark Knight starts, we know exactly where Bruce is coming from and what he's up against and all the meanings and everything that he's going to have to deal with for this. It's just masterful as far as, uh, you know, franchise filmmaking, that kind of thing. I'm just, I'm just in awe of all three of these movies. Yeah, no. Yeah. A lot of what you said, I think we we touched on in the Batman Begins episode, like it is the first time we ever get a Batman movie about Bruce Wayne, first of yeah, all. Yeah. And honestly, I would argue, I would argue it's the it's the only of these three that's solely focused on Bruce Wayne. Like who's the main character of Batman Begins? Bruce Wayne. Who's the main what? character of The Dark Knight? Uh, there's like four. There's like, it starts <laughs> to become gradually an ensemble. And that's something that I definitely want to get into is that- yeah. I feel like as this trilogy goes on, the focus on Bruce starts to get muddier and muddier. Whether that you know is in service of the story and works or not is a different discussion. But it just it it's start it's just uh, indicative of the expansion of the world that these movies create. Uh, right. So going into this movie, which you know this was obviously a huge blockbuster, won Oscars for best supporting actor for Heath Ledger and. Yeah. The first, um, the first major movie shot in IMAX cameras, so that was a big deal. And yeah, uh, you know, first had a comic viral. book movie to gross a billion dollars. Yeah, yes, big, yes, big. yeah. Had a a big like viral marketing campaign, which was one of the first <laughs> times that happened, like in the in, yeah. you know, in the the internet age at least. Uh, so what were you what were you expecting going into this after Batman Begins? Other than I guess a payoff of the Joker card. Uh, and is this, is this really, does this live up to the reputation? This is kind of a bit of a nostalgia cast question, I guess. Does this, <laughs> does this hold up 14 years later as a sequel to that movie? Uh, because I think it, it functions, it, it weirdly functions. And I, and I mentioned this on, uh, I think I mentioned this in post. It's a little behind the scenes. We were, we were, co- this is the last of the three I'm recording. So I think I mentioned on <laughs> both of the other ones, uh, like the comparison to Daniel Craig's Bond movies, uh, that this is weirdly in the middle, like Skyfall, in that it serves, to, uh, builds the stories that, that came before, and also weirdly kind of feels like you could pick this up having never seen Batman Begins and yeah. never watching The Dark Knight Rises. And it, it's, it's transcendent in that way. Does it still, does it work as a, sequel to Batman Begins as well as it works as an individual film, I guess is what we're getting at. 
Right. Well, if we were to take those one at a time, that was a loaded, that's a loaded question. So <laughs> with this movie, I, I, I mentioned again, Batman Begins was to the point where I couldn't contain myself. I was so excited and nervous, just, just anxious to see if they would finally get this character that I've loved for so long. And they, they did that. So by the time this movie ended, I had faith in Christopher Nolan, even though, like I said, Memento was great. Uh, Insomnia was great. He did the prestige after this, which a lot of people will argue is after Batman Begins, which a lot of people will argue is maybe his best movie movie so i had faith that the movie was going to be good so i'm not compared to batman begins i was not nervous about this movie i knew it would be good the difference is i didn't know i wasn't ready for how good it would be i didn't i wasn't ready for how it would take everything from batman begins and kind of expand on it and make it different and everything so to answer that second part i and that ties in with Nolan's whole uh, MO. Like he didn't want to make yeah. each of these movies. You know, when we watch comic book movies today, we expect there to be little Easter eggs. We expect there to be tie-ins. We expect there to be the um, uh, end credits, like the the bonus scene where that ties into the next one. Like that's where our minds are right yeah. now. That is not how these movies operate to the point where I think Harvey Dent was mentioned in the Batman Begins script. And Nolan was like, no, we got to cut it out. I don't want to have any of those. I've got to make this real. We've got to base it reality. I can't have all these things coming in. I just need to tell a self-contained story that'll work. Because again, they didn't know if they were going to even have sequels. So even the Joker card is just there, like I said, as a comment on this is what Batman is. It's always the chicken before Mm. the egg. It's like, if it wasn't for Batman, would we have all these criminals? Or would we have these criminals and Batman is the only answer? So that's, again, it's a knife edge that they're talking about. With this movie, it does work as a standalone, like you said. You don't have to watch Batman Begins. I think the character work and the script works well enough that you're able to understand everything. Even if you had no idea who Batman Bruce Wayne was, you still get, like, it's this guy that's trying to do right. He's being faced with this agent of chaos, and he's trying to keep everything, you know, straight. And then the order, and it's, it's that battle. So even though I do think, emotionally, it does carry on, because this is the same, if we're talking about escalation, like, Dark Knight has maybe three... Um, themes that you can go. You can have escalation as a theme. You can have chaos. Mm-hmm. You can have identity as a theme, which is part and parcel with every Nolan movie. His movies are always about identity and how characters present themselves. Um, so you have those themes that tie in. So it ties in. It's again, it's a continuation of those themes and story points from that from Batman Begins. So I do think it works as a sequel. But it does work as a standalone. It ends at a point where you could not make another movie. It would be, you know, I think a big reason why why it won so many awards is Dark Knight ending on a depressing note. It, it makes it feel like yeah. an art film. You know what I mean? So, yeah, so no, people can they can watch it and think, oh, this is better. This is not what I expect. It's not like he's you know swinging from a rope at the end and it's all happy and exciting. It's like it's it ends on a downer, even though he kind of wins you know the joker kind of wins it's kind of a bittersweet a hard-earned ending but um and then dark knight rises obviously you kick into there it emotionally that still carries over it's like what are the lies that they've told how it's affecting everybody to the point where it ties it all back to the beginning where and and that's the difference between these movies and other comic book movies is there is an end game in mind for this story it's about bruce wayne healing himself and finding the channeling all his anger and his pain to be able to heal himself to the point where I think emotionally the dark Knight rises works best out of all emotionally, not structure wise, but to the end where you see him, you know, be a complete whole person. And that's the journey that it's taking, which is so brave in today's in the face of today's franchise filmmaking that it has an end. 
So, but I don't know. Sorry, that's a very long winded. <laughs> no, <laughs> but there's a there's a lot there's a lot to to, to to get to get to in this movie, and it's it's also it's a there's a, every bit of it is kind of limitless, like bottom the bottomless topics to, yeah. to get into with these movies. Uh, no, I, I you're you're I think you're 100 percent right. It's it it builds on, and that's the thing that I love so much about part other than the Joker card, just like the idea of oh you, you know there's this guy fighting crime dressed as a bat so of course you're <laughs> going to get a guy like there's a clown you're going to like everybody's going to start the theatricality yeah. is going to start kicking in and it's going to sort of kind of infecting the city which is why it never makes sense to me when you know you have something like the, the TV show Gotham where it's like the villains exist and then he's like uh. I guess I'll put on a costume and I watched <laughs> that whole show and I enjoyed it in in elements of it but it's also like it doesn't, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It, it's it, it, us as fans watching any Batman content. We're also sort of expecting him this to be an interminable mission. Yeah. Uh, and Nolan very clearly, and even in that first one, he's like, as long as it takes, this is what, you know, he, yeah. he Bruce Wayne never wants to do this forever. Like Harvey says in this movie, uh, he, he never, you know, he, he's constantly looking for a, a way out basically. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. and this is the closest that he gets to, to kind of seizing it. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, all through all three of these movies, I think Nolan's, you know, you have different ways you can approach comic book movies, right? Like you could really dive in like the Dick Tracy's or like Batman or, or Popeye where it's like a self-contained kind of, uh, closeted world uh you could do like the marvel cinematic universe which is comic booky but also real world and kind of sitcom-ish <laughs> i guess you could say with a lot of comics but then you have this like nolan like i think one of the big you know it's closer to the the x-men movies the tone than it is to the spider-man yeah. movies, which are the two uh maybe most successful franchises up to this point but you know nolan tried to go for well what if batman existed in a real world how would it be and so you if you once you do that like when you show bruce wayne's you know the bruises he's getting and in the dark knight rises when he his knees shot and he goes to the doctor and the doctor's like you have no cartilage in your knee like you you shouldn't even <laughs> be walking around you know what i mean it's he they're setting you up for this cannot be an uh, he's gonna die like <laughs> it's either he's gonna be able to succeed or he's gonna die he's not gonna be able to do this for decades which is what he does in the comics again it's it's very it, and again, it's not something that we look at. We just want our franchises to keep going and keep going and keep going. So it's it's weird to look back at this and see that, oh, this is an end. And there's an actual arc and a point to what's being told. Right. I, I just think that's so brave and so exciting, especially in, in today's age of comic book movies. And the, these movies as a trilogy are so so focused on mythology and legend, symbols, uh, yeah. th to the point that... Batman sort of uh, perverts his own symbol in order to prop up Harvey Dent at the end yeah, of this movie, yeah. like the lie that leads into the next film. Uh, so we were saying about escalation at the end of Batman Begins. So this, of course, Nolan is an, an expert at montages. Like you get oh, all three yeah. of these movies, especially this one, I would say, and and the next one, like conclude on these little montage scenes uh, you know, making sure uh, tying up loose ends. And, mm -hmm. and I think this one is obviously the most impactful of all, especially with that cut to black to, to, to the title card. Oh, yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so we get a montage up front in this was what I'm getting at. The, yeah. the bat signal is still set up and like Gordon's working with him. There's no leads on catching him. Uh, the, the, you know, the whole, the, the fear that, that Bruce Wayne was weaponizing in the first movie is 
consistently being used as a deterrent here. Uh, we get even get like follow up to Jonathan Crane, who was running wild at the end of the last movie, and who, to your point about these being standalone, sort of you know planned individually. Killian Murphy, the only villainous character that runs through all three of these, I think, just because Nolan was like, "Hey, come, come and hang out for a day on <laughs> right, right. on Dark Knight, and come in, and the same with Dark Knight Rises." I love that that you you get that table setting right out the gate. Like we were saying, that if you haven't seen the other one, you're like, "Yeah, Batman's a thing." Here's a second. Okay, yeah. you're good. <laughs> uh, and that Crane notices it's not him when uh, a gun is fired. That's when he is like. Oh, it's not him. You know, yeah, yeah. immediately you get the, the, the way I kind of want to structure most of this conversation is because it's, it's centered on Bruce and then uh, Joker, Harvey and Gordon really yeah. uh, kind of in that order. Like as I was organizing my notes, I was just, dis I discovered that that was kind of the, the, the length of each section as it was breaking down just because it's kind of descending uh, yeah. prominence in the story. And this, you know, obviously the alliance between uh, Bruce and Gordon and Harvey Dent is heavily inspired by the long Halloween yep. as, uh, with a little bit of killing joke thrown in there. So mm -hmm. I, I wanted to start off with, I guess, start with Bruce first. So his arc in this movie, he, he's not clearly the, he's still clearly the protagonist. Like, I think this film does a, a good job at keeping him uh, in that role do you do you feel that ha this film does a, a decent job of balancing all these these four really four kind of uh, drivers of the of the plot and and the theme, uh, keeping them all interplaying and having Bruce still be front and center? Well, I think the like I think we're we're when you the problem with the Dark Knight is that people took all the wrong lessons from it. Like, if you look at... You're talking about the, the four characters, right? If you look at yep. The Amazing Spider-Man 2, which I... I uh, close to despising. <laughs> Just because they <laughs> no, have all... They have all these different characters, but they're not after the same goal. They don't all tie in with the same theme. It's just like, hey, let's throw these villains in there. And it's more like... It, which is frustrating because you see the Dark Knight, and I'll mention this in a second, but the Dark Knight gets yeah. the dichotomy of the characters so well, even though there's two villains in it. But when the problem with the 90s Batman movies is they threw all these villains in there, but there's no, they're bouncing off each other, but they're, uh, they're not really tying <laughs> in with each other. Yeah. You know what I mean? So watching no. something like I'm making Spider-Man 2, it's like, what? Yeah. Like, we're back to this? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, I, I think, and... And I'll, with the Dark Knight, I think that thematically, all those characters that we're talking about, they're all after the same goals, except for Joker, who opposes it. But when you have Bruce and Harvey and Gordon, who are, and again, they have that scene on the on the the long Halloween scene on the on the roof, where they're mm -hmm. planning everything. To the and again, it's it's to the point where it's taken right from that comic. Batman disappears, and and Gordon says he does that. You know, so I I really like that, but. They're all after that same goal. They even talk about getting to that same goal as opposed to these other movies that didn't learn the lesson of this. The thing that works about the Joker two-face balance is Joker, they purposely take out his origins. Like he's purposely left. You don't get an origin story for the Joker. He just is. And they give you hints, which I love. The different, you don't want to know how he got these scars and he tells different stories. And so you, you never get a beat on him. But Two-Face, you know who he is from the start. Like you get him as an arc. He's actually, you know, the Harvey character, Harvey Dent is the heart of this movie, I would say. Mm. So that's where the balance comes from is they're able to, well, we don't need this stuff. We're not going to waste time with Joker. We've got Harvey to worry about. So the balance is, is better kept in here than these other movies 
again, Amazing Spider-Man 2, they have to introduce Harry Osborn. He just comes out of nowhere. And then the last <laughs> five minutes becomes the goblin. It's like, what is this? Like, I, I don't understand what you're, what lessons did we learn from the Dark Knight, if anything, <laughs> other than making Spider-Man dark, which I don't understand right. that. Right. You know what I mean? But <laughs> well, as far well, as, yeah, 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 go ahead. No, you go ahead. I was going to, I was going <laughs> to say, that's the, that's the thing. Like with, these comic book movies, these characters, you can't apply the same approach to all of them. The yeah. fact that that, and I mentioned this on another episode, I don't remember which one at this point, they're all blurring together, um, <laughs> that they they tried to do the Nolan approach to Superman. Uh, and, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't hate Man of Steel. I think I like Man of Steel fine, but it also, like, I totally understand the people that are like, this isn't Superman. You just made Superman like Batman. Or, yeah. or like you were saying, The Amazing Spider-Man 2, the Electro story is essentially the exact same as the Riddler story. For oh, yeah. Forever. A nerdy guy <laughs> was like, oh, and then gets all this power and develops a crush. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then the ba- the worst example of the conflicting uh, motives for the villains is Batman and Robin, where one person wants to cover the planet in plants and the other person <laughs> wants to freeze it. That and it's no like, sense. I don't, yeah, does yeah. anyone realize that plants can't live on an ice cube? <laughs> uh, it's just like, well, who cares about Arnold Schwarzenegger? You know, it doesn't exactly. matter who's going to. And, you know, you go back to, uh, you know, if you're looking at each movie as a different piece, like you can look at this movie like I kind of look at Die Hard, where John McClane is not the protagonist of that particular movie. If you look at the definition of protagonist, the protagonist is the one that makes the decisions, that sets the plot in motion, and the antagonist is the one that opposes that. So if yeah. you're looking at Die Hard, the Hans Gruber character is the protagonist. He's the one that shows up and starts the whole plot. Yeah, you got John McClane trying to reconnect with his wife, but that's a separate movie. Like it takes Hans Gruber to come in and kind of kick everything in gear. And then McClane functions as the antagonist. He's the one that kind of, you know, he, he resists all the stuff that Gruber's doing. He's like throws a wrench into everything. And so it's Gruber trying to overcome what John McClane is, is doing to his plan. And so it's the same thing with this. If you look at it as a separate entity from Batman Begins, Joker is the protagonist because he starts off making the first move and then it's Batman and Gordon trying to counter that move and then it goes back and so it's a chess game. But if we were to look at it as a continuation of the story, again, it ends with Gordon telling Batman, this is the this is the result of what you're doing. And so Batman, from a continuation of the first movie, he's the protagonist because he's the one that started this and it's Joker countering his goals. Does that make sense as far as... yeah. No, like, that, yeah, and, it makes perfect sense. And I think that's interesting, like from a franchise point of view, because you can look at it one way and it works. You could look at it another way. It works. You could look at those three different themes we talked about. And there's there's text in the movie to support any of those themes. So it, it's just, you know, I don't use the word masterpiece a lot, but like masterpieces are stuff that you can look at. You, know, you can look at the Sistine Chapel. You can look at the Mona Lisa and get different meanings from it, like that aren't just tied down to one specific idea. So when I think of masterpieces, I think of things that you can argue about and look at different ways. I just, I like how you can look at, take all these different perspectives of this movie and and it can work. It can work as Gordon being the main character, Harvey Dent being the main character. If you look at it in that way, it can work. I I don't know. I just, what do you think about that? Is that an attraction for you as far as characters go? Absolutely. That was that. That's kind of why I structured my notes the way it is. It's like yeah. this. If this is Bruce's story, if this is Joker's story, it's like it's that's kind of these four intersecting plot lines that uh, th- that are all kind of equally 
equally important in in the way that this story plays out. Uh, I also love the uh, the progression. Speaking of Batman Begins, the progression of he's looking like he's like I said, he's looking for a way out. He has that conversation with Rachel about you. Remember you said that that you know that time when Gotham yeah. no longer needs Batman. He's like it's coming. Like it it, it addresses that cliffhanger from the last one. Um, there's also hints in here of the sort of death wish that we see uh, Bruce more overtly have in the Dark Knight Rises. That yeah. Alfred is sort of you know I'm worried that if you go out there you you know you don't you know you don't want to come back kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that that's all he has. And I love that by this time we get little hints of it in Batman Begins, uh, especially towards the end with the the party scene, but he is fully developed the Bruce Wayne persona <laughs> at yeah. this point. And and not only is not only are are Batman and Gordon and Dent working in in tandem, Bruce and Batman are working in tandem because yeah. there's like there are the there's those moments where Bruce is throwing the the fundraiser so that Batman doesn't have to exist or, or mm-hmm. Bruce is, is uh, Wayne Enterprises is send, sending Lucius Fox over to, to meet with Lau so that Batman can go and grab him. Like they're, right. they're, he's finding ways to sort of play those two identities against each other that I find really fascinating. Yeah, that tends to be, you know, they say that uh, the rascally Christian Bale is, is the best Christian Bale. And I agree, like he's got like when yeah, he's got a good sense of humor about him, like a dark humor. So my favorite parts yeah. of these movies are always, you know, my favorite joke in Batman Begins is where, you know, uh, Batman might have made the first page, but Bruce Wayne got the page eight. And the article says, like, drunken billionaire burns down home. <laughs> burns on, yeah. And, and then this one where, where Bruce, like, runs the Lamborghini in front of that truck that's going to kill uh, Coleman oh, Reese or whatever. But And then it cuts and he's outside and, like, you know, Gordon's like, well, that was brave of you to do that. I was like, what, trying to catch the light? Like, you think <laughs> I should go to the hospital? And Gordon's like, yeah, no, what's the news? To the and to the point where Dark Knight rises, like he's irresponsible to the point where the public sees him as oh, he just lost all of his money. Like he's so irresponsible that he lost his fortune. So it's I like that Bale is able to he can play. It's interesting for Bale. And one of the notes I had here is like I think Bale is maybe the first actor in a live action movie where I feel like that's him doing all the stunts. Because mm. we know how method Christian Bale is, and we know that yeah. that's him standing on the the edge of the the tower, um, on the corner, like outside. We know that that's you know he's willing to do all these things. He's not quite you know Tom Cruise ish as far as doing his own stunts, but I think Bale is so involved. Like I buy him like that he would do that stuff. So it it never occurs to me that that's a stuntman. Whereas like with Keaton and uh Clooney and uh, especially Affleck like you can see that the person in the suit is not him like it's a different <laughs> different chin but I I like yeah. that Bale is is able to to have all those things and play dark and play funny and, and especially when with his uh chemistry with 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 Gordon and with Freeman and with Kane there's there's a definite humor that's tied in it so I don't know it just it's 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 fun seeing him play all the angles but you know you know what I mean? Like as far as all the characters go, I love that they're, it's all themed. Like everything works as a theme. So if you drop one out, like, yeah, you'll lose some time, but it still works as a, like a multi-character, like you talked about, like an ensemble. I think that's one of the things that's impressive. It's, it's picking up characters if you go to, again, show that Bruce Wayne is not alone in his fight. You know, even though he's, he's, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't want, Dent to take the fall like he doesn't want Gordon to have to dig down so he wants everybody to succeed I don't know I'm kind of going down a different rabbit hole there but I like the the ensemble work of these movies yeah yeah absolutely and I, I think 
everyone likes to debate, you know, oh, who's the best Batman? And best is obviously subjective. But yeah. I feel like to me, the best Bruce Wayne, like it's not even a content. So I feel like it's pretty <laughs> definitively Christian Bale. Like, I don't think that most people even argue that point. Well, if you're looking at, again, Bruce Wayne has to be, he's damaged. This is not, he's not right in the head that people have to understand. He's right. not, he's not functioning as a normal person, but he's trying to, that he knows that something's wrong. And I think Keaton kind of gets it. I think Bale kind of gets it, but, and maybe Kilmer, if the script wasn't so lame <laughs> to Batman forever, he, <laughs> Kilmer would have been able to dive into it and be given interesting performance. But the, the Bruce Wayans, I like that they have these distracted kind of uh, psychologically, you know, bent kind of uh, angles to their performances. But yeah, if you're talking subjective, I, like I said, Bale kind of embodies the Bruce Wayne Batman that I'd always wanted to see. So if you're talking about my Batman, Bale is my Batman. And, and I respect everybody else's opinion, but he's the first guy. And no, and again, it's not just Bale that comes in and does it. It's Nolan working. It's Jonathan Nolan coming in. It's David S. Goyer. There are, if we're talking about Dent and Gordon and, and Bruce working in, in tandem for theme, it's everybody behind the scenes as well. They're all making this work and they're all going towards a, a goal and that's what elevates these movies i think above most other things because everybody's on the same level with each other yeah yeah and in this movie he gets to just embody bruce wayne because batman begins did such an amazing job laying the foundation for this character that yeah. you, you know you get you know why he's able to fight the way he is you know why he has this sort of this kind of genius level mind you, you get a little more of the detective stuff in this movie, which yeah. I know that was a big thing that people were like, Oh, we need to see more of the detective Batman in in the Pattinson version and all of that. And right. obviously they're leaning even more heavily into that, but just making it a straight up film noir. Uh, right. But you, there, I think people forget that there is more of that in these movies than they think. Cause we get not only, you know, the part, but the, um, with the gun and the ballistics where he's like yep. recreating the bullet. Uh, we also get like his sort of long-term strategy. Like that's the thing everybody likes to, uh, you know, th basically the, the ultimate get out of jail free card when you're having those who would win in a fight is that Batman would win because he'd figure <laughs> out everybody's <laughs> weakness up front and be ready to go. So in this movie, we get that sort of strategist uh, in motion with the, the way that the sonar technology is sort of seeded early on and the way that pays off in the finale. Uh, and I, I think this movie and its sequel have an interesting interplay in the question of, of this trilogy, which is does God, does Gotham need a hero with a face? Bruce says in this movie that it does. And then the dark Knight rises and it ends with the implication that there will be a hero with a mask on protecting Gotham. What do you, where do you think these movies land at the end of the day? And, you know, are they con contradicting each other or is that sort of an evolution of the same idea? I think it's more of an evolution. It's like, you know, from the beginning, you know, there's a line like, you know, uh, Bruce Wayne, like uh, people like survive on um, apathy, that kind of thing. And like, uh, I, you know, I can't do that as Bruce Wayne is that kind of thing. It's like he wants to create and He mentions that for the very beginning. He wants to create a symbol that can inspire change and things like that. I know that, but it, it ties in, right? I mean, Harvey is daytime Batman in a way. It's like 
Bruce sees in him, this is a guy, and maybe he doesn't recognize the darkness in Harvey because he doesn't, sometimes he doesn't really recognize the darkness in himself kind of thing. So he doesn't see the, the edgy, the, the dark side of Harvey in a way, but with he, and maybe he's rushing it too, because, you know, he can be with Rachel. He sees this guy and it's like, I'm going to grab the first guy that I see that can make a difference. Right. He's going to be, but I think Aaron Eckhart, again, he's, his performance doesn't get talked about as much as Heath nope. Ledger's, which I think is a shame. I think he does it. As playing the all-American straight arrow, I think he does a, a great job to the point where he, where he breaks. It's like, yeah, I can see because they've laid the foundation for that happening. But, you know, Bruce sees in him, this is the guy that can take over. This He's the one that can be, and he says to Rachel, even, he says, he put all these criminals away without a mask. He doesn't need a mask to do it. But then it's to the point where, yeah, well, he can't always be the public face because then he can be corrupted. Right. Mm -hmm. Like someone can come yep. in and corrupt him and target him or kill him or whatever. Batman has to be like the symbol to come in. And like we see at the beginning of this movie is like the, the guy that they're dealing drugs or whatever. And he's no, I don't feel it. And the guy's, Hey, come on. Like you have more of a chance of winning the Powerball. But yeah. it's about the setting up of he's making, he's, you know, he's making a, a point. He's making a difference in Gotham. So you want to have that symbol, even if he's not there for people to think, Oh, I don't want to mess with this. Cause he might be in the shadows, that kind of thing. So I, I think it, it is a progress. Am I making sense as far as that? I mean, it, it's yeah. a progression of getting there. He's just, and, and again, the difference is it's not the same thing. It's not the same note that they're hitting from moment one. Like it, it's changing because if we're looking at it from a real world perspective, our, motives are going to change the way we go about uh, achieving our goals are going to change so i think it it works as far as being organic to that plot and to that uh you know the arc that he's going for it's sort of the the classic uh superhero sequel thing it's also it's like it's the refusal of the call essentially yeah. so you know spider-man 2 superman 2 they're all about maybe I don't want to do this anymore. I'm Spider-Man no more. <laughs> yeah. You know, and this is, this is Bruce Wayne being like, ah, maybe I don't want to be Batman. This sucks. <laughs> you know, joke it, 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 to the point that he, he reaches his sort of ultimate test in this movie and uh, yeah. through the, in the form of Joker, like the, the, uh, this is what does he say? This is what happens when an unstoppable force meets, meets an, an immovable object. object. Yeah. Yeah. Like it, it's just, there is no, there's at an impasse uh, essentially yeah. at the end of this movie. And, I, it makes sense that that would be the character that whose ethos would so clash with his own, uh, yeah. who <laughs> it's the classic, I, you know, I have two kids. I'm an, an, uh, an agent of order and control <laughs> children. Not so much. <laughs> They're agents of <laughs> chaos. So I yeah. understand the frustration is what I'm saying. Uh, right. when Bruce Wayne is like, ah, oh, this is like hard What's going on. <laughs> Nobody told me it was going to be like this. Um, right. <laughs> so I, I think it's, it, it does feel like a progression in that, in that, in that when he arrives there in the at, at the you know at the end of Dark Knight Rises, he himself as Bruce Wayne is able to divorce himself from the concept of Batman, and yeah. I think that's that's the distinction that he's willing to step aside and he does find that day where he no longer needs to be Batman by basically you know appointing a successor uh, to that mantle whatever that form that may take whether uh john uh john robert robin blake blake is uh, a batman right. or a nightwing or whatever what have you uh speaking of rachel how does the their love story or lack thereof how does that work for you because it's it's always felt to me like 
I haven't ever 100% bought into their connection in the way that I think these movies want me to. I, I, it's through no fault of her own. I feel like, and I've said this on the previous episode, I feel like Katie Holmes was sort of miscast as that character. I think Maggie Gyllenhaal embodies the sort of authority that, that Rachel's supposed to have uh, in this movie. But what are your thoughts on their you know, unrequited romance. And would that death scene have had as much impact if they hadn't recast? Okay. Well, the thing with, uh, here's the thing with Katie Holmes is in Batman Begins, I think she's the weak link. It's not just because she's fine. I don't think she's terrible yeah. in the part. Exactly. I just don't think that the, the role, I think that's the weakest character in Batman Begins. Cause she's like, she's, uh, what is it? She's noble to a fault. Like she's, uh, uh opportunity, not, not opportunity, well, opportunistic in the fact that she wants to sleep with the, you know, the, the DAs and that that's kind of an interesting kind of note. That they yeah. Play. But she's, um, you know, she's very stalwart to the point where it's almost like, Oh, you're, you're so stubborn. Like you, <laughs> you're not like bending to anybody, but, I, I just think that that character wasn't really cracked in the first movie. I think like, okay. again, I don't want to knock Katie Holmes. She's okay. But Maggie Gyllenhaal, from the first frame she shows up, it's like, oh, she's an assistant DA. Like, yeah. as opposed to Katie Holmes, who kind of has to convince you. <laughs> she's a, right. You know just, what I mean? It's just a different energy. Yeah. It's just that they have a different vibe. That's what I mean where she, when I said she was miscast. It's not that. Right. She, she, and plus, you know, Nolan's treatment of female characters is, something people are very critical of in general. Right. They have a tendency to either be perfect or completely malevolent or, <laughs> uh, or get killed off during yeah, the story dead. before the story store starts or, yeah, exactly. And so when you have that being his kind of general, you know, apathy towards the, the female characters in his movies to, to a degree, uh, and then you have Katie Holmes in a role where she doesn't necessarily fit. And then you put her with Christian Bale, Morgan Freeman, Gary Oldman, yeah. Liam. It's like, come <laughs> on. Like, so she got done dirty, basically. Right. Well, again, I think nobody would be able to play that role and make it work in the first one because it's not, it, it's just one note, really. And, she, you know, you need a love interest. It's the same thing when I talked about Nolan saying, oh, I need to have a big action climax. It's the same thing. I need to have a love interest. Yeah. If we're to look at it from that arc, I think there's a reason why he ends up with Selena Kyle at the end because I think, um, well, spoilers for Dark Knight Rises, obviously, <laughs> but I think Rachel is more of um, it's it's the ideal. Like this, this is his happiness. Like she's right there. I can just reach over and she's right there. So it's it's just yeah. going to be easy, right? I think there would be, and again, one of the things I want to talk about is this is one of the first maybe the first comic book movie where choices have consequences. It's yeah. not like in Spider-Man where you have Green Goblin, here's a trolley full of kids and here's Mary Jane. I'm going to drop them. And oh, Spider-Man is able to save both. It's like, that's what you expect from a superhero movie. In this one, this movie is, it's a series of moral choices, right? The Joker is there to make these people like face who they really are. He's given them these hard choices. And in those moments, they reveal, like he says, they reveal who they really are. With Rachel, you know, they have the thing where can can he save like Joker in that that I do want to talk about the interrogation scene, but oh, when he, you know, they they face off and it's like you can go save Harvey and you know you can have this is your ideal. You don't have to be Batman, or you can go save Rachel, but you'll lose Harvey and you'll keep having to be Batman. It's like all these things, and so when she dies 
first of all, it's really shocking because I did not expect the movie to do that, right? Because most comic book movies won't, and most comic book movies mm-hmm. today won't, to the point where Gwyneth Paltrow can be killed off in an Iron Man movie, but she'll show up back up five minutes later. There's no consequences. It's all comic book fun, right? But So when Rachel dies and she's blown up, it's, it's a shocker. You're like, I can't believe they just did that. And I agree that if they'd had you know, Katie Holmes, it would have had a more uh, like emotional connection. I think um, if you're looking at Rachel McAdams was in the running for mm-hmm. Rachel Dawes. And I was like, oh man, that would have been perfect. Like have her and then have her. She could have pulled off the the assistant DA stuff and, you know, have fingered over Dark Knight Rises. I, so the impact is less in there. But I think, again, this movie works as a one a one-off. So it does work with what the themes are being told. I just think that that Rachel is the like I said the ideal. It's it's not the connection they have is yeah she's known him since she was a kid right that that's it like I can just have her whereas he sees later in Selena Kyle that this is me like this is more right. me I can identify with her more and so when she's killed off yeah it's hard but even like Bruce Wayne continues his mission right it's not like he mopes for the rest of the movie he has that one scene which again I thought was great how that most people don't realize that you know when she's she's dead and it's bruce sitting in the chair and alfred mm-hmm. comes in and he's like i thought i'd prepare your supper and he doesn't say anything. And he says very well he walks off and then bruce says alfred and they have conversation that's the exact same conversation from batman begins after his parents die so that ties in that that dialogue is perfectly yeah. tied in there but even after that he's able to pick himself up bruce picks himself up and he keeps going with the mission because there's still stuff to to solve it's not like rachel's death is going to keep me from from stopping the Joker, I've got to keep going. So I think right. even from that perspective, Rachel is more a means to an end. That sucks to say about it. It's like you're talking about Nolan the way you Right, exactly. <laughs> but I I don't think that it's a fridging. I don't think because Bruce it it does, and Alfred says, you know, Rachel knew the cost. Like she knew this was gonna happen. I know that it sucks, but you know, this is all the goal that we're going after. And so Bruce is able to keep going and, and buck up and and you know continue his mission. So it's not really a fridging, it's more of a, well, that was a consequence. Now what do we do to have to keep fighting the evil? Right. Again, long-winded way of answering your question of whether you thought that was the romance first, but yeah, but it also makes sense where at the end of this film, through the Dent Act, you know, presumably between these two movies, uh, why Bruce would then be like, well, my chance of happiness is gone. My mission yeah. as Batman is done. Eh, yeah. I'm going to stay home and just hang out um, and, and, until, you know, Anne Hathaway comes in here and starts shaking things up. Uh, and to your point about Selena Kyle, that that's almost exactly what Michael Keaton says to Michelle Pfeiffer in Batman Returns. It's like, you and I are the same split right down the middle. Yeah. That's what, that's why those characters are that relationship endures in every version of this character. That's why Mm. every Batman, every big screen Batman eventually gets his Joker, gets his Catwoman, And then (laughs) anyone else they get along the way, it's, they, they, you know, it's fine. You can get a penguin or not, or a two face or not. But you need a Joker and a Catwoman. That's kind of my take on it. Uh, I want to move from Batman to Joker uh, now, but the the Batman voice. We have to. We would be remiss if we didn't <laughs> touch on this. Is it how does it rub you the wrong way? Are you like I think it's fine? What what is, what's the situation there? Because I <laughs> it's I mostly I mostly just am used to it. There's a few scenes where he's like really like uh, the most egregious. I think is at the end when he's like. Um, this city just showed you <laughs> right. it's full of people 
ready to believe in good. Like that's where I'm like, Oh God, dude. Or the hockey pads thing at the beginning. Like I don't know why they lean so hard into that. I think it was fine and and begins, but what is your take? I think even to the, I was reading something today. I think Nolan even messed bail. Wasn't that that heavy when they made this. And then Nolan kind of amplified it in post-production to kind of keep that up. I'm not sure if that's hundred percent true, but it's just interesting. You know, with the voice, it's a choice. (laughs) <laughs> and I like that. I like that Bell stuck to it instead of changing yeah. it every time. Like the last thing I want is for anybody to to have the um, influence of the Star Wars sequel trilogy, where you're just reacting to stuff that happened in the last movie, and that, yeah, that's what you're judging. Or you you focus your next movie around. I don't. I think that's a chicken way of doing things. I think you you need to stick with the aesthetic that you set up. And so I admire yeah. that at least he sticks with the voice and it's a choice. Batman Begins, you're right. It's the most tolerable. Even when he's like, swear to me, you know, it still ties in. And then here, you know, I think it works, especially when he's talking to Dent. He's like, if anybody saw this, you would, all this work would be undone. It's like, I think it works there. I think it doesn't get to the parodic levels that it gets to in Dark Knight Rises. It's like, where's that trigger? Where's that trigger? At that point, it's like, whoa. It's like, whoa, whoa. Like, you're, 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 <laughs> not for a better, lack of a better term, you're Donald Trumping it. You're giving people ammo. You know what I mean? <laughs> to, to, to yeah. act you for this. But it's like, I don't mind it in this. Again, it's a choice and he doesn't quite go overboard as work. And you're right. It's like, <laughs> believe in good. It's like, yeah, that's, you're you're kind of like all right, like you you made the choice, but maybe you should have rethought this. <laughs> right, but yeah, you know, not everybody can be um, like Kevin Conroy. I think Kevin Conroy got it yeah. perfect uh, as far as switching the voices. I think Kilmer even does it pretty well. Like he has his normal voice, and then his Batman voice is well, Doctor Meridian. You know, he has kind of a, more of a base, yeah. so even he kind of does it. But yeah, it, but. I don't know. At least it's not uh, taking the easy route of having a voice modulator. I'm not a fan. Of which that. is what <laughs> Affleck did. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Which you know, I'm like, ah, that's yeah. Wrong way. Like yeah, even Ke- even <laughs> Keaton is just like, tell your friends about me. It's just like low yeah. and whispery. And I think that you, that was all you really needed. Uh, right. I want to well, direct people listening to this to uh, if they haven't seen all these sketches that Pete Holmes. Pete Holmes. You know, yeah. Pete Holmes did. <laughs> oh my God. Those are so great. I've watched those so many times over the years on YouTube. He's right. got one where he's testing the voices <laughs> and he's doing like a, like a Ray Romano at one point, trying to find the one that sticks. Definitely. There's like, there's somebody put a, a compilation of all of those uh, together. He's got a bunch of different ones reenacting scenes from this trilogy. And it's like the best 35 minutes or whatever you'll ever spend on YouTube. <laughs> Definitely check that out. People that haven't uh, seen that, but, but yeah, well, so I, we had, we had to touch on the boys. That's what I'm talking about. Like the, where's the trigger? That's like, oh man, like Pete Holmes is going to have a field day with this. It's like, why would you feed <laughs> yeah. into that narrative kind of thing? You know what I mean? But it's like, I think Keaton, the, the problem with <laughs> the difference between Keaton and no, and uh, Bale is that Keaton would purposely cut out his dialogue. I remember to the point where he was very monosyllabic because he didn't, it, he said, I think in an interview that it would just sound silly if I was going to monologue in that voice. Right. You know? So he kept cutting back. And the problem with Nolan is Nolan is very verbose. So Batman's going to have monologues. And so I think the problem is when you have to monologue in that voice, I think that's a problem because <laughs> it, yeah. you can't take it seriously for that long. Again, the part where, where Batman confronts Harvey with the coin when it's a, how do you pronounce his name? David, uh, Met, 
from um, Ant-Man. The, uh, like, Desmalchin, I think. Desmalchin, it is. Yeah, yeah. It was so great yeah. seeing him. I was like, this guy's going to be a star. Yeah. Like, it's great. But like during that scene, when Batman is talking to Harvey, I think the voice works perfectly there. Like he's not yelling, he's just raspy. And I think that works there. But you're, you know, I'm not going to say that the voice isn't silly. I just think that everything else works so well that the voice yeah. I'm able to just say, ah, it's all right. Like, I yeah, it's, this it's not a deal breaker. It's a minor ding. You're like, eh, okay, I'll move yeah. past it. Except oh. for the end with the where's the yeah, except, except for, for that. that. That's where I'm like, oh, <laughs> especially because that's supposed to be a big emotional moment. Yeah. When, uh, you know, when no one on the boats detonates, <laughs> you know, the bomb and, right. and Batman sort of has the moral upper hand. And then, yeah, yeah it's it's a weird place for that to, to kind of creep in. Uh, so there's a, there's a Joker in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe it's taken us this long to really kind of delve into that, but that's kind of the order we're doing here. Yeah. Uh, so obviously Heath Ledger passed away in January, 2008, six months before this movie would have way elevated his career. Uh, what do you think, how do you think that his, his passing affected not only the hype surrounding this movie, but also the, the way in which his uh, performance was received? I guess the, the, another way of phrasing it, would he still have gotten an Oscar if they didn't, you know, if that hadn't been the narrative, I, I think, Probably, but you know, I think there's a there's a discussion to be touched on there. I think it helped that he passed away. I think that it helped the box office that he passed away. People wanted to see what he did. I think the difference is is the character is it's again, I'm gonna have to pick on the Tim Burton one. The Jack Nicholson is not my favorite Joker because he improvised a lot of his lines in that one because there was a writer strike and it's all about him like trying to be funny. And I always compare Nicholson's Joker. I'm like, you you cannot take Jim Carrey's Ace Ventura and complain about that performance <laughs> and say that Jack Nicholson's Joker is one of your favorite performances. Cause I'm like, it's the same damn performance. Like they're, they're both talking out of their butt. They're both like overdoing it to the point <laughs> there's yeah. Jack Nicholson is one of our finest actors. If you give him material that he can bite into, there's he's transcendent. Like there's nobody like him. In in Batman, he doesn't have that material to work with. It's just him being funny, which again worked for me as a 12-year-old. But now I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, never rub another man's rhubarb. Like, what <laughs> what is that? Like, what are you talking about? But Left in, to his own devices, he goes in some gonzo direction. Yeah, it's just, just weird. I know a lot of people like to say that that uh, Ledger improvised this uh, the, his whole role, but that's not it. Like he only improvised. Like he with Lindy Hemming, he worked their the wardrobe out. He worked. He put his own makeup on. He's the one that yep. came off with the. Uh, uh, I can't, it, it's escaping the smile that he uses. Um, you know, carved into his cheeks. What you know that that kind of thing. He the the licking the 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 face. I right. think was it was initially to keep the prosthetics in place from slipping, and then yeah. it became a character quirk that that is now iconic. Right. I think the the deal was like he kept licking because it, it kept like the facial mask on, like the prosthetics on, but it works right. because when he he's licking his cheeks constantly, it's kind of like a serpent, you know, and that's kind of the vibe that that uh, he gives off. It's just the Glasgow smile. That's that's what I'm talking with carving the 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 smile into his face. But so he improvised that. He improvised the part where he was clapping in the jail cell. But everything else is on the page. This Joker character from the very beginning was written to be this way. And Ledger coming in and making it extra special and adding that extra layer, that's what makes this character transcendent and iconic is he already has good material to work with. 
and he's taking it to that next level where he his presence hangs over the movie mm. and when they were filming i was just telling my wife this uh, last night like watching behind the scenes stuff with his performance you think they would wheel him in from another part of the set and then uncover him, let him do his scene, and then they cover him back up and then wheel him off. It, he gives off that kind of vibe. But when yeah. you watch the behind-the-scenes footage, it's Ledger on set, joking around with everybody, talking with Nolan. Obviously, in the interrogation scene, he told Bale to actually punch him to kind of heighten the uh, realism of that scene. So he's worked. And then people, like there's shots of him skateboarding over Bale's body, you know, when Batman, when he's lying on the ground, they're having like skateboarding stunts. And he's <laughs> laughing and joking around. And people would show up and wait after their time on set they would show up and just watch what he was doing because they could tell something special was happening so i, I think like you said the the death his passing helped but it would have been an iconic performance no matter what and it's yeah. a complete package it's i hate when people say oh he the, the whole movie is just because ledger it's like yeah he's a big part of it but he's already taking the material that the nolans and goyer gave us and he's elevating it to that next level that's making it so classic, so instantly iconic. Yeah. And I and I think this character emerges so fully formed, too. It's like you said earlier, the fact that we don't get a, a backstory is one of the best decisions this movie makes. If they'd had yeah. spent the whole first act being like, oh, and he was, you know, a gangster or a failed comedian. And like, oh, brother. <laughs> like the fact that yeah. he he just he just emerges. It's you can almost look at it as like um the the cosmic scales balancing things out. There is a Batman yeah. and so there must be a Joker. They are yeah. negatives. They are they, you know, that's sort of the, the the immovable object thing. The two of them are destined to do this forever, which is a line that always is like so heartbreaking now watching yeah. it. Knowing yeah. that this guy should have had not only been the chance had gotten the chance to reprise that role, but had should have had such a life and career after this. This would have completely he would have been A-list after this performance had he yeah. lived to to see the film released. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. It's it's to the point where, in a way, <laughs> this is going to sound terrible. His passing, the only positive I can see that is, I'm glad that they didn't have to bring the Joker back for a third movie because that, if, if I would have lessened the Dark Knight Rises even more, because mm. then people, I don't care what you say, like even though you have Ledger back, people would still be, oh well, he's not as good as he was in the Dark Knight. That's so true. They'd still have something to complain about. Again, I like that it's just a one-off. Here's the Joker. The next one, here's Bane, Catwoman. It's like every, you know, these are just. In, there's no carryovers. I know the complaint is they wanted Harvey Dent to be to carry over into the next one, but again, that's not how Nolan works. He wants to have everything in this one movie, but. From a from a writing standpoint, when you know Joker says, "Do you want to know how I got these scars?" and he tells the story about his, uh, you know, his wife, or no, he the first one he tells about his dad, his father, the yeah, devil, right. And I'm like, oh no, when you see that, you're like, don't do this. No, I don't want a backstory to him. But then <laughs> when he's got Rachel in his grip and he says it's about his wife, you're like, I can see what this guy's up to. That is cool. Like, yeah. thank you for putting it. Nolan gets these characters, like. Like in Batman Begins, like the scene that I think gets Batman and where I was like, this this Christopher Nolan understands Batman from the ground up is when they treat Batman as Freddy Krueger on that doc scene, right? Yes. 
I got so excited during that scene. I'm like, Batman is supposed to be scary. They're treating him like Jason Voorhees. They're treating him like Michael Myers, where he's this killer that that just leaps out from the shadows and grabs people. And I was like, you know, this is Batman. Like, just from that one scene. It's the same thing with Joker, but not just in one scene. It's over the course of the movie, he becomes... Again, it has to tie in with the way that this movie is structured. By the end of the movie, it's like, what did I just watch? Like, I have to go back and watch this again. That was amazing. Like, what the the whole picture of Ledger and the writing and the direction and the Hans Zimmer, like the one note score that kind of, it makes him seem like the shark from Jaws. You know (laughs) know what I mean? That's the great thing about the score is whenever you start hearing that one note, you're like, ah, shit. (laughs) Like, (laughs) there's trouble coming, right? But because you know something's up, but... Joker, I don't think he functions, and Nolan talks about it's a heightened reality, it's realistic, but not to the point where it's so realistic where you have to explain everything. There's a heightened reality and exaggeratedness. The Joker's the same way. He's a force of nature, and that's what he's able to show up places, be so smart ahead of everybody. It's just the way that they're selling the character from the start. So, so yeah, it's just an iconic performance that I I thought is well-deserving of all the awards, whether he was still with us or not, so... And this performance makes it, this this character comes off so terrifying because we don't know where he comes from, because yeah. we don't know what he wants, because it, it's kind of a deconstruction of like, okay, how, you know, there's a lot of uh, scary possibilities. There's, as uh, to quote Tom Wilkinson in Batman Begins, the secrets of scary people, which I always love that phrase. Yeah. Um, hmm. it, there, it, it's, we are able to persist through any fears of, of, wrongdoing or something happening because of logic like oh well that would never happen or yeah why you know why would why would this person go after me when there's other you know things like that you you exist in the in life because you're just like well that doesn't make any sense like i'm here this is safe and nothing happens (laughs) what are the chances of that kind of thing right yeah yeah, like that's how you are able to function otherwise you'd be like well something scary can happen at any time uh and here you're confronted with a villain who might go after you for no reason because yeah, he was bored. He felt like yep. it. It's there's no logic. There is no some men just want to watch the world burn. And that's mm-hmm. what makes him so scary and unpredictable. And that's and and I I think that's an interesting way that he sort of undermines, you know, the the concept of fear that even Batman uses against the the criminal elements of Gotham City. And it makes him unique in in his in his uh philosophy, I guess, as it were. Well, you do want a villain that challenges what the hero stands for. And if you're looking at like even the moral code that Bruce Wayne, like he won't kill. Like I know there's, you know, there's, <laughs> it's I don't have to kill. I'm not going to kill you, but I don't have to save you. It's that kind of like secondary right. kind of murder kind of thing. But he does, Batman does not just walk up and stab somebody in this, in these movies. He doesn't walk up and just shoot somebody in the face with a gun. He's not like serial killer type where, where he is. He's more of a serial killer in the Burton movies because he has like the the mo like all the bad. <laughs> he literally like puts <laughs> grenades in people's pants and stuff. Yeah, and walks so away. <laughs> you could say he's a serial killer, but in, like, in this one, like he has that moral code. He won't kill outright, and Joker is able to manipulate that to the point where if you're not going to kill me, I'm just going to keep going with this, and that's what makes. Again, oh my gosh, it just ties in so perfectly. If you have Joker as an agent of chaos, and he's throwing Batman's sense of logic into an uproar, and all Batman had to do is just run him over and kill him. Imagine how many lives he would have saved. But again, that is yeah. the knife edge that we're talking about with these characters. It's what makes it so interesting. Instead of just 
you know, breaking his neck, which would be the easy thing. It would be like a half hour movie. There's no drama. There's no Shakespearean quality that, that goes on or the tragedy that happens. It all just, it ties in so well with those characters. You could have just made a movie with those two in the chess game that they play and battling yeah. Gotham's soul. But this movie has more on its mind. And that's that's what makes this movie next level. And I don't know, like I, I think it has a, a leg up on all of the comic book movies because it's so deep in all the themes that it's trying to encompass. And Joker perfectly embodies those any of those themes, the escalation, the chaos, the identities. He's, he ties in perfectly with whatever Nolan said he set out to do it, it ties in perfectly i think <laughs> yeah he's essentially a blank slate that you can uh not a clean slate that's the next film um, <laughs> a blank slate that you can sort of assign whatever to yeah. uh but, but does he does he look like a guy with a plan because my take is he's the most planned and and what makes him <laughs> yeah. like that's the thing when they like, over the years rewatching this movie every time he has that scene with Harvey which I'd say is probably his second best scene in the film and that's you know every scene he's in is amazing obviously from the <laughs> the cold open with William Fickner and where you basically learn everything you need to know about the Joker through other people sort of again myth and legend mythologizing the Joker like why do they call him the Joker I hear he wears paint on war paint to scare people like you know who he is before you even before he pulls that mask off, you understand who this character is. And I think that's the ingenious part of this writing. Uh, yeah. But he is the most planned. Like, like yes, you planned. <laughs> Everything you do is planned. Like, th- what makes him seem so ingenious is that he, and this is kind of getting to the thing with uh, the, the choice, the consequences that, right. that come on the, uh, in the wake of the interrogation scene, is that he constantly rigs the game. So anything that happens, he still wins. Like if Batman would have saved Rachel, he he still would have won. He still would have killed Dent. You know, either way, yeah. it's like he it, it he 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 stacks the deck, pun intended, in his favor. Right. Well, since we're still on the subject of Joker tying with Batman, that interrogation scene, like so, just so well done. And again, it encompasses everything in that one scene from the comics, that is their relationship. It's like, I don't want to kill you. Like I, I, I want to, my point is to test you. Like, this is so fun. Like trying yeah. to push you past your limits. And he, that's what that whole scene is about to the point where Joker gets the better of him that he starts beating him up. I like, uh, there's, there's so much atmosphere to this movie. I, I love the relationships with everybody. I love that they're sitting in that interrogation room and it's Gordon and Ramirez and all the other cops just watching to the point where, you know, they see you know, Batman starting to lose control, right? And they start getting on edge and and Gordon has to say, no, he's in control. Don't worry and stuff like that. It's I, I yeah. love all the atmosphere that it creates and and maintains. But yeah, that dichotomy, you know, and then again, they they play that theme, you know, when he's like, you're going to have to play my game if you hope to save one of them. And it's like them. And that again, he keeps the game going and he manipulates Batman to the point where, yeah, he's going to go after Rachel. I think he intrinsically knows that that's the choice he's going to make. And maybe that's why yeah. he gives him the wrong address. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what I mean? I, anyway, that, that whole thing is just so interesting and it's so well played, but it it kind of started the whole maybe, well, seven kind of did it, you know, when, when uh, John Doe shows up and kind of gives away his game, but him being captured is all a part of his plan, that kind of thing. Yeah. But I I think this is the movie that that kind of solidified that trope to the point where we see it in Star Trek into Dark, see it in Skyfall. You see, you know, where the villain wants to be captured because it's all part of his 15,000 uh, you know, part plan. You know, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> 
So yeah, he he is planned. I I have the note I have. It, it's not like Joker is defeated so much as he just runs out of ideas. Like everything's working in his favor <laughs> yeah. until the point where yeah, the the fairies decide not to blow each other up. It kind of confounds him, and he's like, that I can't exist in this world where people are are functioning logically. Like he can't handle that. Right. You know exactly. what I mean? But you know, I don't, that it's the centerpiece, right? I think. If we're to look at this movie from like a structure point, I'm sorry if I'm going way off off a uh, uh, topic here, but it, it does tie in with the way that each act is like it's an escalation of things. It's an escalation of ideas of Batman and Gordon and Dent trying to one up the mob, but then Joker confounds it to the point where all of a sudden all these people are being killed and Joker assaults, you know. Bruce's uh, high-rise apartment and they have to stop and replan so that's what starts the second act the second act builds to the point where you know Rachel is captured and, and or Rachel and Dent and they're, they're captured or whatever and then they, they get blown up and then they have to stop and they have to re refocus and so then the third part is an escalation to well now we're going to involve the whole city and now the city is going to have to make more choices to the point where mm-hmm. you have good people and you have criminals on the ferries and now here's the choices in that interrogation scene when Joker is confronting Stevens, yeah, we always complain that Nolan is on the nose. I think that it works in that part where, where Joker's like, you know, I use a knife because I can see who the people are in their last moments. Like, would you like to know which one of your friends were cowards? And he's saying like, when the chips are down, this is what people will do and they'll show their true selves. Even though it's on the nose in that part, he's trying to egg Stevens on to keep going with that plan. And then in the end, that's his goal. It's like he basically told Batman, people will show you what I think the world is is crap. I think everybody is corrupt. I'm going to escalate to these fairies. And then when they confound him, because you have the hardened criminals that the the tiny Lister character tosses the yeah. detonator out of the, out of, you know, the criminals do that. They take the first move. And then the, the, the blustery guy on the citizen boat, he's like, oh, I'm going to do it. But then he doesn't have the guts. He's chicken and can't do it. And again, it's it all ties in with that. I, I just like that. I like watching it, especially at this time. It's like, yeah, Joker, you you flat out said this is what people are going to do, but you don't know. Like Batman knows a yeah. little bit better than you do. And so that's where the hope is at the end. Even though it's a dark ending, Batman was still right. You know what I mean? He, there, he did have faith in people. And they did come through for him. And he just, he didn't have to make that choice because he knew people would, would do the right thing. I just, that's their whole relationship. Just the way that that works. I like that this is the, sorry, really getting long winded here, but I like, (laughs) I like that this is their end game. This is their game that they're playing this time. And you're right. It is heartbreaking that they weren't able to do this again because they could have done movie after movie like this. That's the one thing where it would have been interesting, but you know, that's their dichotomy. I think it it's just perfectly played uh, uh, to the point where they're talking and Joker says, you didn't really think I was going to have to, I was the whole battle <laughs> for Gotham. So going to come down to a fist fight. And I remember the right. theater thinking, thank you. Like, and then the whole ending of the movie is just the three pro- well, protagonists in, in quotation marks. It's the three of them discussing what had happened and the consequences of all their choices. And that's, Wow, that's where the movie is so powerful. Is it's not just about the the crowd pleasing moments, which the movie has a lot of, um, mm-hmm. but it's not yeah. just about that. There's so much more. I think I was telling you on on Twitter, it's like this movie is the whole package. It's not just one thing. It's everything. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, I, I backing up to the to the Joker, like the the fact that not only are their worldviews so uh, uh, in opposition that Batman sees this 
insanely corrupt city and he's like nah i can save it i can change him yeah. kind of thing <laughs> and then joker's like nope even the good people air quote good people are just as bad as me it's the it's like extreme idealism versus extreme cynicism and i think yeah. that is such an interesting dynamic to see play out uh but but he also the batman's the only one he really like drops the facade with with the mob he's tries to come off like oh i'm just this guy i'm just a dude who likes dynamite it's all good <laughs> yeah. like he just he shows up at at the their their group therapy session in broad daylight uh rigged with a bomb and wearing their the the, the the suit that he bought with the money that he stole from them in the opening sequence and uh it just comes off like oh yeah i'm just some wild card you don't have to worry about me but i can help you kill batman <laughs> you know, if, if you're good at something, you never do it for free kind of thing. And yeah. he he uses that same sort of uh, persona with Dent. He's like, do I look like a guy with a plan? I'm a, I'm a dog chasing cars, you know. Uh, I wouldn't know what to do with if I caught it, which I guess to a degree is, is true because he, like you said, he kind of runs out of ideas at the end. But <laughs> he's been orchestrating all of this from the beginning. And he yet he's he keeps playing it off like, no, look at me. I'm just, look, I'm just a crazy person. There's no method to my madness. And <laughs> right. I love that, that, that he has that sort of uh, duplicitous side. Yeah. It's the, you know, he tells, you know, when he's doing their, the group therapy session with the mob, it's like when somebody call, I think it's Gamble that says like, he's a freak or he's insane. And he, he stops what he's doing. Like Joker stops and he's, he reacts like, I'm not crazy. Like, don't call me that. But then later he, when he's talking to Dan, he's like, yeah, I'm crazy. You know? So he's, he's playing those two things just depending on, and then there's that dichotomy, but there's also the, the dichotomy with Batman where that's, what's interesting. It's like, he's, going that extra level that he shouldn't be going to it's like everything that he gets these criminals to admit is not admissible in court like it's not under like the miranda rights all this stuff him going and extracting wow that's not legal like you can't do that you know all this stuff and as far as the law goes and so batman again that's interesting how it's playing both sides of that it's not he's not heroic because batman is like I've said multiple times, he's walking that knife edge of being the the angel versus being the devil, I guess you'd say. But he needs to be that extra hand that goes to places that regular people can't go. I, I just think it, there's so many sides to this movie. It's not like it's not just one thing. It's just constantly just yeah. you're, you have all these ideas bouncing on each other. It's just so interesting from a screenplay level. Um, yeah, I just. And, and the con the consequence of this whole movie happens because of one choice at the beginning of the film when Gordon and Batman are talking and is like, oh, one man or the entire mob? Like, yep. we're going to take the mob. Like, wrong choice. <laughs> yeah. You made Imagine. that wrong choice. <laughs> you could have you could have cut out all this trouble right. by just getting him now. Uh, one thing I want to point out before. Uh, well, first of all, I love the, the Alfred stories uh, about the, you know, the bandit in Burma yeah. and having to burn the forest down in order to, to get him and how Batman essentially has to do kind of a, a technological equivalent of that with the, the sonar. Yep. Yeah, basically, which I, I love the, the parallels there and how that story, they keep coming back to it to sort of punctuate him trying to figure out the, the Joker to the point that towards the end, he's like, oh, with the Joker, it's not that, it never is, you know, it's never that simple to, right. that he figures out the, the hostages and are, are put wearing masks and all that. But I wanted to point out that this movie is probably one of the best examples of a PG-13 movie that gets away with some incredibly violent <laughs> concepts by cutting yeah. just the right moment, by showing it from just the right angle, by yeah. leaving things just out of frame. You know, the scene with Gamble where he essentially, you know, 
pulls the, the knife across. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the scene with Lau, where yeah. Lau is on the top of money. That's clearly, he's burning alive, but we're just yeah. not seeing it, but it's implied. Yeah. Um, the fact that this, uh, there, the, the, the balls of this movie, that his plan, <laughs> part of his plan culminates in the fact that a man has a phone and a bomb oh, kind of yeah. sewn into his stomach. Like, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're talking some uh, uh, some slasher movie type tropes <laughs> yes. that they're they're yeah. dumping into. I that's one of the notes that I have. It's and uh, and again when when Nolan met uh, Michael Mann, which we all know that this movie was inspired by Heat. It's kind of that Very same much, yeah. or uh, The Departed or The Godfather. They're going for that same kind of ensemble epic feel. But when he met Michael Mann for the first time, I think Michael Mann's first question was, "How in the hell did you get away with a PG thirteen on the Dark Knight?" <laughs> and it's it's just like he said, it's cutting away. You don't see you you know Two Face shoots um, uh, Wurtz or whatever in the face, but you don't see it. Yeah. You see the gunshot, and even with Two Faces, uh, that's probably the next character we wanted to talk about. Maybe, yeah, but absolutely. Even with Dent's face burnt off, I think Nolan was like. We're going to go and exaggerate it to the point where we can get away. You know, I can argue with the MPAA that it's not realistic. So it, I'm not, we're not going to get an R rating off of this face because you can tell that it's, it's fake, it's disturbing, but it's not in a way that you're looking at like crime scene evidence or, or in a, you know, in, in motion, that kind of thing. It's an exaggerated, like a heightened reality, like we talked about. It's, it's that extra layer that makes it not believable, even though it's still disturbing. So yeah, there are, they're getting away with so much in this movie. And it's, you know, I've seen worse R rated movies, like from from like a tone perspective or a violence perspective, but just the way that they're able to, to shoot things so creatively. And that's, you know, that's, that's part of uh, Nolan's uh, MO, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's amazing to me that, that, because I've seen R rated movies that are tamer than this. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) And and yet this somehow happens. And, and, you know, we, we, you know, obviously we're going to move to Harvey Dent. The, the other big, uh, you know, inspiration for this other than the long Halloween is the killing joke, because there's a yep. whole story in there about Joker trying to push Gordon to the point of madness here during that scene in the hospital with Harvey. That's essentially what he does. It just needs a little push. It's the one uh, bad day. Right? <laughs> the one bad day. Exactly. And, uh, and yeah, it, it, the Harvey's face is, is probably a good place to start Harvey two face. Uh, that it, it looks just comic booky enough that it's like, there's no oozing or anything. It's just very, (laughs) very, uh, I don't know, consistently colored and, uh, you know, has that like kind of that, that, I don't know, that exaggerated feel to it. Do you, first of all, do you think those effects hold up? Because I, I, I feel like now looking at it, it, it does. It does feel slightly aged in in the CG there, but I think it still it mostly works because of the way that they sell it. Um, you know, again, I, I think it just ties in with the way that the character is built and the characters written to the point where you it still works for me because it's secondary to the psychology that he's going through. I mean, looking at his face and seeing the eye and seeing like you can see the tendons like on his cheek. You can see his teeth, and there's a part where he's talking to words, and he, he drinks the whiskey, and it drips That's, down his chin. I had that note. The way he like wipes it, like the little details like that, I think help you help make it that much more believable. Right, but it, it's the way that it's structured that I buy it. Like it's secondary. This, but I think they do hold up because you know it's exaggerated. Like like we talked about, it's not. Right. Um, it still works in the context of the movie. 
Uh, at least it's better than like the, the eggplant that they put on Tommy Lee Jones's face, which doesn't take well at all. <laughs> oh, yes. You know, where it's just right Probably, down the tip. Yeah. Right. It, you know, Batman Forever, you can even see when when Maroney or whatever tosses the acid and it goes all over his face, but then he's just <laughs> able to block it with like a manila folder, you know, and it's, yeah. <laughs> so it, it it's stops just, perfectly down the center. Yeah. At, at least it's not that, you know what I mean? I, I agree with you that it's not, I still, if it's disturbing, like when you, I like that they keep it from you for a while. Mm-hmm. I like that yeah. they talk about in the beginning, like, you know, Gordon, I know that they had uh, a different, um, you know, name for me down at, at uh, police headquarters. Like, Love so they that. build the, the Two-Face into it. And then later it was like, what did they call me, Gordon? It's like, say it, you know, and he says Two-Face and he turns, but we don't see his face until the right moment where it's like, you know, you're not sorry, not yet. And you see, I just think it's so disturbing that it still works from a story perspective. Yeah, we can look at the special effects and how they're not maybe up to snuff with everything we see today. But for what is that, 14 years ago, I still think it's it's pretty effective. Yeah, I, I, I agree for the most part. I, I think the the approach here that makes it so interesting is that clearly they they you know they knew who these characters were they knew what fans would hope to to see harvey dent who goes by the name two face whose face is burnt who has a coin now how do we make all of that make sense within this world as opposed to tommy lee jones who's like oh i like coins i don't know Why? there's no explanation for the coin and then he becomes you know that's when you get to like two face who's like robbing the second bank of gotham on the second anniversary of the whatever yeah, like yeah. <laughs> you know that's what these people become gimmicky or it becomes like a lot of the marvel stuff and everybody like, i've seen this in film twitter people pointing out that they're like oh really they call you that Pfft, that's ridiculous it sounds like yeah. a comic book character or whatever we're like yeah i get it huh yeah come on um, <laughs> what we they passed this with them. what do you want to go out like in yellow spandex i thought we were past this you know what I mean? right yeah exactly <laughs> exactly they they justify all of that here from the beginning with the the two-face which having him be having have, having worked in internal affairs it's such a genius way to work that that into it having the double-sided coin as sort of like him making his own luck and having that be a, a character quirk of, of his and then having having uh his obsession with with fairness and all of that yeah uh it, it's you know you see it, it's sort of the um whenever a hero goes from goes down that dark path and turns villainous or lives long enough to see themselves become the villain i, I guess as it were right. uh it's it's always like, is that believable? Do you buy that transition? It's it's the the reason a lot of uh, a lot of people balk at something like Revenge of the Sith, where you're like, wait, now all of a sudden he's like, yep, I'm a Sith Lord. Send me to those kids. Slice. Um, yeah. It's they established earlier in this movie before the acid even becomes a thing that he's already got a dark side. He's got a. a you know, he's got a, a, you know, a, a temper he's got like, and he uses all these things to justify his actions. But then at the same time, you know, he, he's heading down that dark path, but he's not quite there because yeah. he knew that the coin was going to land on heads. He knew he wasn't going to really shoot this guy. He's just trying to scare him, but he's, mm-hmm. it shows what he's really capable of. Right. Um, Robert, you and me, man, you and me, like, that's another thing. It's a complaint that I've had since this movie came out is like the, you can, when he breaks, there's, it's built to a point as opposed to revenge of the Sith, where it's like, Oh, the plot says that I need to do this now. So I'm just, all right, let's go. I'm going to start killing kids. Like, well, that was a, like, where did that come from? Like, I know that you have this dark side and you killed a bunch of sand people, but like that at least was in the name of your mom. Like, why are we going out and killing kids? murdering children just so you can keep your wife alive it's it's there that dichotomy is so strange 
challenge. And you're right. Like the way that they build from the very beginning, one of his first lines is fair is fair. You know, that, that, that spreads all through the movie. I love um, even, you know, if we're talking about uh, Joker and Batman kind of being two sides of the same coin, you know, there's sorry for that pun there, but if you're looking at two phase, (laughs) Harvey Dent even has ties to Bruce Wayne. Like the first scene in court, you see Harvey Dent, like he's almost assaulted by, with the gun and he takes it and he disassembles it in front of uh, Maroney. And then later when Joker attacks Bruce's high rise, like Bruce confronts the guy, the, the criminal in the, like in the hall, he's like, hold it pretty boy. And Batman knock and Bruce Wayne knocks him out and disassembles the gun. Right. Yeah. You you have the scene where uh, Bruce is talking to Lucius, and Lucius is like, "Did you reassign research and development?" And he's like, "Yeah, I'm playing this pretty close to the chest. You're going to have to trust me." And then later, when you find out that Gordon is still alive, which that was a nice, I didn't see that coming. But when yeah. you know Gordon opens the door and there's uh, Harvey, he's like, "Boy, Gordon, you do play things pretty close to the chest." You know, they have this mirror imaging uh, going on. Um, that I think is interesting. And then there's also like the, you know, the darkness and you have the James Newton Howard, like that dark kind of intonation, that menacing theme that kind of hints at where Two-Face is going, that kind of thing. And so when he breaks, all that stuff is already planted. And this is just like, he's, he's so stalwart and he's so good that when he's faced with this impossible, you know, scenario where the love of his life is gone, like that, you can tell that that it breaks him and you can feel that in the script. And I think that's again, not just the script. It also was Eckhart's performance. He's selling all this as the white knight, but with that dark edge. Um, Yeah. Just a lot of interesting dichotomies going on here. And I agree with you. Aaron Eckhart's performance is easily the most underrated uh, element of this film because it, it you he he carries the second half essentially at least yeah. uh and he is essentially as you said like there is an argument for him being the main character of this movie and the fact that Aaron Eckhart uh would have made would in another universe in another place in the in the multiverse i guess <laughs> as it were uh he would have been a great batman he's got the chin for it and everything yeah. uh so I, I to your point about him being sort of in the all american sort kind of idealist i i think it 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 works on that in that regard and the fact that the movie does kind of toy with your expectations because i guarantee you so many comic book fans went into this saw that scene with him in the courtroom with maroni and is like oh he's about to get acid thrown in his face <laughs> and then right. didn't do that so then later when gordon seems like he got shot before even getting promoted to commissioner we're like, what version of Gotham is this? Like, is anything, is anything goes, I guess. You yeah. know, it throws you off balance, and and it plays with the what we know about the source material in in different ways. So it it's, it stays faithful to the spirit of it, but doesn't necessarily you know slavishly be like, well, this is how this is how Two Face operates. Um, what are <laughs> right. your thoughts on the fact that that when we do get Two Face, that uh, that he is essentially dispatched at the end of this movie, which is the second film in a row where Batman's like, I don't kill people, but sometimes if I have to, I don't always kill people, but when I do, it's accidental uh, or, or calculated <laughs> because the Ra's al Ghul thing right. in the last episode, I was kind of like, he kind of killed him. Like, I don't know. I'm not going to kill you. I'm just going to put you in a, in a situation right. where you're going to die unless I do something. It's kind of killing you. Um, yep, but of. the fact, <laughs> the fact that we get to <laughs> however he wants to justify it, there's moral gray areas all over these movies. Um, it, it, the fact that we get him as Two Face and then he's out. Do you like kind of like you said that kind of one and done? I personally feel like that revenge story, like that's 
if you would have kept him going, he would have become that gimmicky sort of version of what I, what I was saying earlier. Yeah. Well, if we're talking about and mentioning Joker and how he starts telling his backstory and me thinking, no, no, don't do this. And then he tells the backstory differently. And like, ah, I see what you're doing. The one of the drugs, like, I'm sorry to get so nerdy, but the psychology of two faces, he's totally dependent on that coin. Like that, that's, yeah. he, he needs that in order, in, able to, in order to function. Right. So you have the scene where two faces confronting uh, Maroni in the, in the limo and he flips the coin and it lands on the good side. And it's like, Oh, like he's not going to kill him. But then he flips it again. I'm like, no, 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 don't do the Tommy Lee Jones thing with when Batman forever, where there's a scene where he attacks Wayne Manor and he keeps keeps flipping the coin until he gets the result that he wants. I'm like, there's no psychology to that. Joel, Joel Schumacher there's no you're just doing this to be funny and that you're you're right. not hitting the psychology of it in this one when Two-Face flips it again I was thinking oh no they're Tommy Lee Jonesing it but then he goes I said you were going to be okay I didn't say anything about your driver I was like okay right <laughs> that makes sense but you know it, it ties back into Nolan saying he wants to tell the story like if he was the Marvel Cinematic Universe if he was Kevin Feige he would have had Two-Face turn in the last few minutes and it would have been you know they'll the reveal them in credits or whatever it's like harvey how you doing and it's like i'm split you know and the, you know whatever some stupid line where you're like oh here comes two face i heard next. you were dead half yeah. like half you get that line in this movie yeah <laughs> right that would have been the yeah end. that's that's an even better line than the one i just came up with bravo bravo to you for that but you know if we're if we're looking at marvel cinematic universing it i think that's what they would have done i think there's an arc here I, I don't know with that face. I don't know if Harvey would have been able to survive. <laughs> right. You know, he's walking around. I think, you know, he, and he even says like, there's no escape from this. I think he's just done. Like he wants to die. Yeah. Like when he flips the coin at the end and it lands on heads when it's his turn, he's just, he's disappointed. You can tell there's a flash of disappointment that goes cr crosses his face because he wants to die. He doesn't want to continue past this because he has nothing to live for. And yeah, <laughs> you're right. It's the same thing. Like, Batman, I don't think he planned on killing him. It's like, I'm going to push him over the side. He just tried to grab him and they tumbled over the side. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? And he's able to save the kid. But yeah, um, it's... I all these I think, characters, yeah, Joker, Batman, and Harvey, they all have these these rules that govern their behavior. But then sometimes they find little ways <laughs> to sort of bend the rules right, so that right. Joker still wins out in the end and Harvey still gets to crash uh, Maroney's limo and Batman <laughs> still gets to take down Ra's al Ghul. And right. I find that is sort of an interesting parallel between these three characters. Yeah. Like, it, you know, we're, it's kind of pushing that line, but I think it's the knife edge. That's what makes it interesting. Yeah. Like they're, they're walking both sides of this. And so, you know, when, the, the thing I want to mention, like with Rachel dying, what's when, when they're talking at the end and it's that scene and we haven't talked about Gordon yet. So maybe we want to save this, but like yeah. when there's that scene, I don't, like I said, I don't, I don't, we'll come back. I don't think he planned on killing Two-Face. I just think that's how it happened. And, no, I don't think he did. Either. <laughs> right. But he's still, but he's still, but he still did. He's like, I have yeah. one rule. I don't kill people. Well, except for Harvey and except for, <laughs> except for when I have to. Yeah. Um, uh, but no, I, I, real fast, I forgot to mention when I was saying how they justified all this, all the, the, the Two-Face iconography from the comics that they even use the, uh, his injury to sort of fuel his, like, his uh, frenzied rage because dude's not taking pain medication. Nope. I'd imagine he's not feeling great nope. with that face. He's got a splitting headache and it's like his whole face feels like it's on fire. So mm -hmm. he's basically channeling that into this, this manhunt of the, the people responsible where essentially it, it turns out Harpy was right. Wurtz, yeah, Gordon's over there. This guy wants to keep Lau in there with scum. Like uh, he's working with scum, Ramirez, like yeah. Wurtz and Ramirez. 
And it's, he was right. He says that at the end. He's like, if you guys would have listened to me, none of this would have happened. And you can't really argue against that. And I think that makes that character more compelling. Like everyone is, has, has multi layers in this. It's not a black or white uh, sort of comic book movie. Like a lot of them are. Well, even him channeling that, using that pain and challenging that rage to go on his, like his, uh, you know, rampage or whatever. That's the same thing as what Bruce is doing. He's funneling all his anger and using that to help fuel what he's doing every night. So there's another kind of mirror image that I didn't think about till, till just now. So that's a, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I, we have to talk about Gordon and then, yeah. then <laughs> this is an epic length episode. I'm not, <laughs> I shouldn't be surprised. We had a lot to say yeah. um, so far and we're not done yet. Uh, so, so Gordon's obviously developed a, a trust with Batman since the last movie they've been working together. He just shows up at crime scenes and Gordon's like, eh, give us a minute. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's kind of jumping off of what I was saying about Wurtz and Ramirez. It, it, the early part of this movie is Dent and Gordon sort of volleying back and forth with, well, whose office is more corrupt and <laughs> how do we sort of manage these limited resources? He's got that line that he says to, you know, if I, if I, you know, if I, I forget what he says, but he's, he's like, if I, w- if I didn't work with people that you investigated at IA, like I'd be here alone. Like I have to make yeah. the best with what I have. That's, that's essentially <laughs> the thesis statement for that character and his, right. his role in this movie. Yeah. First of all, like talking about Gary Oldman, Gary Oldman's always been one of my favorite actors, but the thing with Oldman is he always plays like, you know, Sid Vicious or Dracula or uh, Drexel in True Romance or, or, you know, he always plays these despicable type characters. So you're afraid of him to the point where when they cast him in Prisoner of Azkaban, you're, you're playing off of that persona. Like this is Sirius Black and it's Gary Oldman. He's obviously an evil person. He's going to kill you. But then it turns out that Sirius Black is the most probably the, the kindest um most charismatic character in the whole franchise according to, to me like in my opinion and it's yeah. all part of when you see oldman he's, he's part of that pantheon of like uh, james gandolfini or you know there's a there's a bunch of actors that started out just being evil and when they turn and they're able to play good characters you're like oh my gosh there's an inherent goodness to you that i didn't recognize but it's always been there and i think Oldman from this, like, I think the he they did cast him as Razel Ghoul at one point, but Oldman was like, I don't know if I want to play a villain again. And then Nolan went back and said, How about we play old we play Gordon? And he's like the, the paragon of goodness in Batman Begins. And Oldman like jumped at that. And he he's so kind and he's so likable, and you're on his side, and you know he he you know why he teams up with Bruce to to kind of take down crime. And in this movie, it's the same thing. I love Oldman in here because he's got this inherent goodness. But like all the other characters, he's still towing that line of, am I going too far? Like with Batman, am I letting him do too much? Like, am I relying too much on him? Like, or am I relying, like you said, too much on the the bad people that I know are bad, that I have working with me, but I, I have to do with, I have to make do. You know what I mean? It's, they're all walking that, that knife edge. I keep saying that again and again, but they're all walking that edge of, you know, am I going too far to achieve my goals? And I think Oldman is up for that. He's got the goodness, but he's also got the the dark edge. And it's, you know, he's to the point where he fakes his own death. That was the point where I was like, what? Yeah. Like, you, you can't kill Gordon. <laughs> you know? And so yeah. it's just did like you, when, you, when you saw this the first time, did you did you think he was did, like, yeah. I kind of half bought into it. I was like, <laughs> oh, well, what? Yeah. Well, when when Stevens and Ramirez go to visit Barbara and, and you know, there's yeah. that whole scene. It's like they're really playing this up. I don't know to what level, like, who is he keeping it a secret from? <laughs> you know, and I, was it just right. Batman and if 
Harvey obviously didn't know. So was it just Batman that he was keeping a secret from? Did they have to cart him off? And and Batman, was it all part of their plan? Like to, to I don't know. It was just interesting. But when they killed him, I was like, did they just, did they just kill, did they kill Gort? Like, you're like, what is this? It's like you said, it's like, what universe am I operating where they could do this? <laughs> you know. But then, you know, they bring him back. You don't want to see, because he has to become commissioner. I think that they kind of right. play with your expectations, but they still end up getting to where they need to go as far as the comics go. Um, yeah. But yeah, he's, he's the, <laughs> he's the good, he's the goodness, I guess the good side, even more. I don't know. Would you agree that he's, is he more incorruptible than Dent? I know that they say at the end, like you, you were the best of us. Um, I mean, I, he existed in a world pre-Batman, a Gotham pre-Batman and a GCPD that was almost universally corrupt uh, to the point that his partner was working for Falcone and he's like, Oh, do you want to taste? And Gordon's like, no, that's, that's your thing, man. Like yeah, yeah. just keep me out of it. <laughs> so I, I mean, he kind of had to be in order to survive this long without right. falling prey to that. And I, I think it's, it's really funny how that whole chase sequence, which, which we should probably mention a little bit with the, <laughs> that action sequence with the Joker and Batman and the 18 wheeler that they really flipped Mm-hmm. For real, the the later on they even you know blew up a factory dressing it as, up as a hospital. All of that stuff, the practical effects and the actual stunt work that you don't see in in the MCU very often. Uh, <laughs> no shade to the Marvel stuff. I, I love those movies too, but it's different approach. <laughs> D- different of that one. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, that that whole scene is sort of uh, you know we always get those the shots inside the car, but we never see the other person. <laughs> who is in the driver's side of that uh, that police car or that armored car or whatever, because it turns out to be Gordon at the end. That's the big reveal. Mm-hmm. I think it's really funny watching that, after, you know, knowing that that's the case, knowing that Gordon's along for the ride the whole time. And it feels like possibly the only time the Joker is really bested in this film until the end, because I don't know if Joker knew that Gordon was alive. I don't feel like that was part of his plan. Well, yeah, the Gordon things. I mean, he did want to be captured, obviously, but I don't know if he he, right. he couldn't have known about Gordon. Like if well, nobody else, it's that, <laughs> it's that thing. If he got captured, he's got he's got plans set up for that. If yeah. Batman runs him over, like you hit me, the whole thing in the street, which is such a great moment, and yeah. and all, everything with the bat pod, ricocheting off the building <laughs> after the car truck flips, all that stuff's gold. Uh, th- then he proves that Batman is corrupted, and then you know he's. That that symbol that is Batman is is destroyed basically. So either way, it works out for him. He's right. just he's just like how how far can I push this? So I love that that is that Gordon is uh, is you know actually gets the upper hand and saves Batman and that has right. that moment with his son. Yeah, well, that son. That's a note that I wrote here. Is like it that gets me teary at every time when when you know James Junior whatever wakes up and just looks at him. And was like, did Batman save you? Like, I just thought that was like, oh, that's <laughs> that's a human moment. Like this, Gordon is a he's a good dad on top of everything else. But you know, I do we do have to talk about that chase sequence. But I, I did want to talk about if we're going to climax the movie and we've talked about Harvey, we've talked about Batman and Bruce, we've talked about Gordon. Just that scene at the end when it's them talking and it's the, I think James Newton Howard worked alone and the music that's playing in the background. Um, the thing that really sells that on top of the idea that, oh my gosh, why is a comic book movie? First of all, why is a comic book movie, why does it include a scene where you have two groups on a ferry? You know, and then one of they're trying to decide to blow each other. Why is that in a comic book movie? I'm always amazed. 
by that. Again, yeah. I'm going roundabout a way of getting to the Gordon thing, but like, why is that in here? It, it's so, it, I know people complain about it, that it's some kind of like a freshman college entry, like thought experiment kind of thing. That's like kind of dramatized. I think Tom mm-hmm. Brahan of, of, um, I can't remember like Vulture or something said that in his review of the movie, but like the, that has no business in a comic book movie because it's so deep and it's, it encompasses the themes of the movie. And it's like, what I, I didn't expect this. Why aren't people like shooting each other and flying and like zapping each other with laser beams? It's like, why are we having this actual, like, again, moral choices between characters that were evolving the city people now. Right. And if we're tying in the wrong lessons, amazing Spider-Man two tries to do that. Like there's a part where he's Spider-Man's fighting Electro at the end and they have a scene with an airplane that's going to crash because the, the power is out. But the problem with that, they're trying to do the same thing. The problem with that is that people on the airplane have nothing to do with any characters in that movie. And it's nothing to do with the situation that they're facing or him, Spidey trying to solve his problems. They're trying to throw this like this moral ethical choice in there, but it has no tie to everything, but they're trying to be like the dark Knight. It's such a terrible scene and such a terrible inclusion where, especially comparing it to this, where it ties in with the theme of the movie with Joker saying, people will show you who they are in their last moments. And that ties in. So number one, why is that in here? That is no business in a comic book movie. And, and, you know, thank you that that's in here because it's, it elevates it. But the other thing too, is when you kill Rachel and you're in shock and you're like, I can't believe they did that. If that was Spider-Man, he could have saved her. Right. But that's not the kind of movie that this is. And so when they give you those stakes, sure, Gordon survives and they kind of pull the rug out from you there. But then they're also setting you up for when Rachel gets killed. It's a shocker. It's a genuine shocking moment because you don't see that happening to the point at the end when it's Gordon and and Batman and it's Harvey talking and Harvey has the gun pointed at the little kid's head. And the thing is, that kid, the way that the movie has set us up, that kid could die. That kid could be shot because the whole movie has been setting us up for this. And so it's so tense and you, you know, it's all come down to this. It's all come down to being fair and and choices and everything. My wife, every time we watch this movie, she's in tears by the end of that because it's just so intense and it builds and you, you know, when Harvey says, I want you to tell your kid, it's going to be okay. I want you to lie to him. Like I lied. And you know, it's all, Oh my gosh. It's so to the point where you're kind of relieved that Batman kills him. (laughs) <laughs> you know, when he comes out because that's the yeah. release of tension and you know and Batman falls or whatever and then again you have that tie-in at the end where at the end of Batman begins you know Gordon says I never said thank you and Batman says you'll never have to and then at the end it's like when Batman comes back alive or stands back up you know Gordon says thank you and Batman says you don't have to thank me he says yes I do so even that ties in um, yeah. to Batman begins but this the drama that they've built up and all these three characters and they're they're all going after the same goal and they've all been tempted in different ways and they've all succeeded in different ways even though you know that's what we talked about when you're talking about an evolution sure batman wanted to accomplish things and he does get his he got does accomplish his goal where harvey is able to be the face of justice but batman is still corrupted like he the symbol that he wanted to create it's worked against that does that make sense it's like yeah it's just interesting that that's where this ends up. It's like, I'm getting what I need because now Harvey's going to be the face and crime is going to, you know, there's going to be people that are going to take this and run with it. But I didn't mean for Batman to be corrupted. I meant Batman to be a a figure of hope, but you know, it's, it's the, like we talked about, it's the dichotomy. It's like two different things. There's nothing easy in this whole movie. And that it comes down to those character relationships that we're talking about. 
Yeah, I love that the emotional climax of it is those three men at, on, you know, on a ledge with with a gun, and and that's what it boils down to. You know, and, and to uh, you know to our point about earlier, like this movie is so uh, unlike Amazing Spider-Man Two. It's not trying to set up a shared universe. Um, <laughs> it, it's just telling this one story, and in doing so, every scene, every moment, it's. Nolan's movies tend to be this way in that they move so quickly and they're so intricate that you can often, if you're watching it for the first time, you miss stuff. Like, wait a minute, how did they find that? Because there's a line of dialogue in a, in a real, you know, a couple shots that establishes that and then they move on. It's, it's so tightly woven. It's like, it's like a piece of clockwork, this movie. Mm-hmm. That every little gear in place, that even the, the, the subplot with uh, Coleman Reese, which we barely touched on, <laughs> it, it fits in here perfectly because it feeds everybody else's story. Any other movie that would have been like one, one too many. Like there's so many different uh, subplots in play, including these characters that we've brought up. And it's, it's incredible that it's able to, uh, that it's able to kind of make everything work against each other. Uh, one other thing I wanted to bring up too, is that, the the supporting players in these movies, the Eric Roberts, the Michael Jai Whites, you already mentioned uh, Tiny Lister, uh, R.I.P. Uh, Nestor Carbonell, like all those, like he, he Nolan, really fills out. Yeah. Anthony Michael Hall, yeah, exactly. See, we can go keep going. All three of these movies have those not not even supporting roles, like supporting supporting roles that are just like uh, could easily be throwaway, but by putting a, a talented actor in every little, uh, every little moment, it, it again, uh, so speaking of escalation, it escalates and elevates this material. Mm-hmm. Uh, the end here, and then we'll, we'll start wrapping up. The end obviously sets up kind of a chase movie with the cops and Batman, which is not the movie that we get. What were your expectations? I mean, well, I mean, it, it was, there's, there's like one sequence in the dark Knight rises where they're chasing Batman. What were your expectations for what the, the next film would bring, knowing that obviously Heath Ledger uh, was no longer going to be a part of it and all of that? Well, again, I didn't know, you know, Nolan talking about like he only does a movie at a time. Like I don't think they, they and they struggle with writing that third. And I think that's where some of the problems of the Dark Knight Rises come in. It's like they, they didn't really have, I mean, I think it works emotionally. I don't think, um, the, the thing with this, with this movie, and I mentioned it when we talked about, uh, feel the dreams is that it's, it's long, like this is a two and a half hour movie, right? But every scene, and you, you touched on this just recently, the Coleman Reese, he doesn't just pop up. Like he's planted from the very beginning, like one of the first opening scenes, right? The thing that's amazing, and I'll, I'll, I'll answer it in, again, a roundabout way here in your question, but the thing that's amazing about The Dark Knight is it's a long movie, but to me, it never feels long because every scene is a result of a scene that came before it. Even from the very beginning, if you're looking at Joker and the uh, the bank heist that they're doing, that's still a result of escalation in the, the Joker card from Batman Begins. And then, you know, every scene in here, including Coleman Reese, including like, you know, um, uh, Lucius introducing the sonar and then Bruce taking that and using it later. Every scene in this movie is a result of a scene that's come before. This movie is so plot driven. It's, it's incredible. When you look at this movie from a plot point of view, it's structured in a way that just, it moves like, a, because one scene leads to another scene leads to another scene, as opposed to feel the dreams where 
and it's my favorite movie. So me picking on it's kind of weird, but you know, he hears the voice for the first time, Ray Kinsella. It says like, if you build it, he will come. And it, it establishes rules with the baseball players coming in. And that could be the movie. Like it's done. Like there's no other goal for Ray Kinsella to do, but then the voice says, go the distance. Right. And there's another, that's the, the do as it's mocking as the God in the machine that shows up to get him to the next level. A lot of movies like do that. The Dark Knight, if you look at it from a screenplay point of view, it, it's a plot driven movie where one scene leads to the next scene leads to the next scene leads to the next scene. And it's exhausting, but it never feels long to me because it's built plot wise. Whereas The Dark Knight Rises kind of feels long because they're trying to, they're biting off more than they can chew. I just think like, if I'm looking at where this movie, I, I thought there would have been more than that. If they were going to make another movie, I was like, oh, this is going to be so cool. How are they going to make this movie a plot driven, a plot engine of a movie? And then they don't, the most disappointing thing for me about Dark Knight Rises, it's it's not really that. It's like a bunch of scenes and they're all kind of clashing with each other and it works emotionally, but doesn't reach or attain the level of professionalism that this movie does. Does that make sense? It's like, yeah, yeah. this, this movie, if, if you're looking at the three movies, like Batman begins, obviously it's the weaknesses is the, the setting up of the universe. Like they're trying to establish that this is a Batman you've never seen yeah. before. So there's, even though they're trying to be different, it's still a franchise movie. They're still trying to set this up and it works as an origin story. This one is just the, the solid middle section that could work by itself. It's the crime story. It's the, you know, the story of moral choices. It's all that. And then the dark Knight rises is the flaws that it's just emotion. Like we're concentrating on the emotional story to finish this up, even though all this other things are going on. It doesn't quite fit as well, but I, I just thought that it would have been an escalation. Like we talked about from this movie, that dark Knight rises would have done that, but it didn't, which is, which is fine. I'm able to forgive it because there's a bunch of other things, but as far as like where I thought this franchise was going to go, it didn't, quite go to the place where I, I thought or logically I thought it would lead as far as, you know, Batman Begins is a great show, but then Dark Knight is even better. And so you'd think mm. logically Dark Knight Rises would be the best out of all of them. But I think that's where a lot of the, uh, the trilogies kind of uh, stumble. Yeah, I think you you see that time and again, and especially, I don't know, in, in pretty much most trilogies, but even more so I'd say in superhero uh, genre like you see the spider-man spider-man 2 spider-man 3 trajectory or x-men x2 uh x-men the last stand as as uh this podcast will get into next year <laughs> which that is that's going to be a journey i'm, I'm yeah. kind of bracing for that <laughs> 10 movie uh mega series but as a way of sort of easing out of this long conversation about the dark knight um <laughs> What what do you think that this franchise? Because I mean, normally I ask your ranking, but I'm, it's pretty clear what your ranking is based on what you just said. So it's <laughs> is is it? Am I correct in assuming it's the Dark Knight, Batman Begins, Dark Knight Rises last? Well, it depends on the day. <laughs> I yeah, think, I think it. Um, Batman Begins. It we talked about it. It's the origin story that I always wanted, even though there's some weaknesses. I think it's a right. Batman movie first and foremost, and I that's what I love. And I could watch it again and again. The Dark Knight, I could watch it, but there's going to be a certain point where I'm going to get exhausted because it's just so yeah. you're so invested. Draining. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then Dark Knight Rises, even though it's kind of a bumpy ride, the emotion that it hits and the way that it concludes the Bruce Wayne story. Um, so that he's able to find closure and able to move on and able to find happiness and, and move on from the bat, you know, identity that's been, you know, that whole movie is about how, and everybody keeps telling him, it's like, this isn't good for you. Like the Batman is dragging you down. And so that's what he really, he needs to escape from that. He can't be Batman forever. And so that's what, you know, emotionally, I think 
Dark Knight Rises works best for me on an emotional level. So mm-hmm. it just depends on the on the on the day. Like today, yeah, you're right. I'd have Dark Knight as the most solid, and the Batman begins. Well, you, you've spent two hours talking about it, so now you're like, yeah. I'm so pumped up. I'm ready to put this on again. <laughs> right? Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And then, what, do you? I, I know we just we just ranked them. Like, what what uh, is that? How you'd rank them? Actually, do, do they? For me, that? it's <laughs> yeah. No, you can ask me that. Uh, it's definitely Dark Knight Rises third. I I. I it's very structurally messy. I think there's a lot of, and people hear this next episode. Uh, there's a lot of uh, moments and beats that don't land for me in the way that I think they're supposed to, but thematically it's so strong and emotionally, like the way that that it sticks the landing. Nolan knows how to, how to conclude a movie. Let's put it that way. Um, so I, I admire elements of it, even though it's kind of frustrating because certain things I'm like, ah, this is like all over the place. Uh, (laughs) as for the other two, they're both, they're both up there for me. They're it's, I, I kind of agree with you. I think the dark Knight is probably the best, mm-hmm. uh, but I think Batman begins is more rewatchable in a way yeah. because mm-hmm. it's, because it's, it's this character that we love and it's really kind of basking in everything right. that Batman is by seeing it like built brick for brick. Uh, it's just like the Wayne Manor at the end of the film. Uh, so it's, it's, I agree with you. I think it's kind of back and forth. I probably still put dark Knight in first place, but it's like to borrow a phrase from you, a knife's edge between uh, the dark Knight and Batman begins for me. Like it depends on the mood after I watched Batman begins, uh, for the, for that podcast episode, I was just like, Oh, this is so good. I forget yeah, how good this works. movie is until it ends. And then it's like yeah, yeah. that theme kicks in. And then same thing with this one, when it gets to that final, the the final Gary Oldman monologue about, you know, a watchful <laughs> protector, the dark Knight. even this, mm-hmm. this movie even makes some goofy ass shit. Like the dark, like dark Knight. Like it's just some, every, <laughs> all the comic, all the superheroes have their, like, you know, their nicknames that, that they just like try and use on the front cover, like the dark Knight's darkest hour or whatever. <laughs> and, and here they're like, no, the dark Knight actually kind of fits. Harvey was the white Knight. This is, he's willing to kind of go where Harvey can't or won't. Uh, and you know, until he, he until he goes to all two face on us. But uh, so even that they justify. But I wanted to ask you before before we sign off, have you seen the Batman? Because I'm very no. curious. After all these thoughts you have on the Dark Knight uh, trilogy, I'm curious. In I, I would really like to hear what your thoughts on in that film because yeah. I was coming to that one. Being like I, I, you know, I of course it's Batman, so I was gonna see it, and I was excited to, to check it out, whatever. But I wasn't like pouring over every bit of footage, and like I was like, yeah, I'll see it, whatever, I'm fine. I don't know. <laughs> it looks too close to the Dark Knight trilogy, and then when I saw it, I was like, they they freaking did it. Like mm. it, it feels different. It's what is it better than either of Batman Begins or Dark or the Dark Knight? Nah, nah, not yet. I mean, I haven't seen it nearly as many times. Uh, but it does something. It finds a pocket of that character that these movies didn't cover and it applies sort of a, a different tone to it where it feels like a gangster epic. Uh, it feels like a superhero movie wrapped in a gangster epic wrapped in a film noir. And I think that's, <laughs> it's, it's an interesting sort of blending of, of tone. So I, I would still encourage you to check it out. Even I though I know you're reticent to all the re all the reboots, but well, we've talked about, on Twitter, we've you and I have talked about how like I haven't seen this. I I think it's just because I'm Batman out. Like I get it. These these three <laughs> movies, it gave me not just everything I wanted, but everything I never knew that I needed from a Batman story. And so I'm like, when you see Bruce smiling at Alfred at the end, I'm like, I'm I'm 
satiated. Like this gave me everything I needed from a Batman story. And I can't believe they're ending it on this note. So I'm, I'm not against, cause I, I like Matthew Reeves as director. I like Pattinson. Yeah. I think he's another actor that could have those little weird moments of showing Bruce Wayne. is not a complete person. So I'm not against the, I just, I haven't gotten around to it yet. To watch right. it. It's also like but, three hours. So I mean, yeah, yeah. you have a lot of stuff going on. So I, right. I get it. Well, I like this it. conversation is almost three hours. What are we almost? Two? Yeah, it feels like I, it. I, I know you wanted to to wrap up, but I I wanted to ask you one last thing. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm sorry. I know you wanted to keep this conversation structured. No, we, no, we've not done that. <laughs> yeah, we, we've kind of done that. We've done that more than I normally do. So, but we haven't. I, I did want to ask you what you feel about the action because we did mention the chase scene, which I think is incredible, not because. The, the thing that's interesting about these movies, and this is the, the last thing that I want to say about the, so we'll, we can close in this night. I could go on for hours and hours, but I will try to, well, this will be me Joker, like running that's out of it. ideas. Right. But <laughs> with the, I think it's interesting that, that Christopher Nolan, like when you watch James Bond movies, James Bond movies are impersonal because they've got, it's all a, 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 you know, paint by numbers thing. They've got this person handling this, this person handling the stunts, this person handling the drama. And then the, right. the action is directed by a second unit stuff. For Batman Begins, Christopher Nolan got rid of the second unit and he directed the action himself because he wanted to make this his movie, right? But, right. and that's the weakness of the movie. He tries to hide it with the, you know, keeping Batman kind of hidden so you don't see the fights, like stuff like that. But there's still the weakness of the action. I just think is it's interesting watching Nolan progress as an action director. I think the action out of all three of these movies, it's best in the Dark Knight Rises because there's not a I lot agree. of confusing stuff. Because you know, Jim Emerson did this thing where he back in 2008 or 2009 he attacked the Dark Knight. And he he compared the the truck chase scene to like a scene from Salt with Angelina Jolie and how the scene in Salt was so much better than this because you know it's not directed very well and all this stuff and. Watching the movie this time, like it, during that action scene, I did want to sit down and say, okay, how is the action in this? And I do think that the weakness of the movie, there are some weaknesses in that chase scene. Like you'll see like it, Batman coming with the, the Batmobile, right? It shows him like looking from the right to the left. And then when he switches after the, the garbage truck, he hits that, he hands from the, the left to the right. And then it's him facing left to right. So I think that's fine. And the Joker's the same way in his, uh, the truck, the, the slaughter is the best medicine kind of semi. <laughs> yes. So that's the same. But then you have the scenes inside the SWAT van with Harvey and the other cop where they don't switch positions. And the way that Joker is shooting at them, it comes from the opposite direction behind the cop. When logically, from the geography of it, it should be coming from behind Harvey. I don't know if you noticed that. Yeah, no, that's true. But like, there's the weakness there. But the difference is like Emerson comparing this movie to Salt. It's like, sure, Salt is it's easier to follow, but it's like watching paint dry. It's like, yeah, I get it. This movie, even though the action isn't quite there, it has those moments of the, those grand, like, wow, I can't believe, like the truck flip or the yep. helicopter getting caught in the wires and crashing, you know, the, uh, Joker or Ledger just standing in the middle of, of you know, the, the street or whatever with the buildings kind of pointing down or kind of framing a certain way. So even though I think the action, it's stronger in here than it is in Batman Begins, there's still those weaknesses. I just think that there's so many iconic moments in here. And the, the thing where the bat pod, I just wanted to mention in the theater, yep. when I realized what oh, was yeah. happening and that it was going <laughs> to pop out, I, uh, my friend that was sitting next to me was like, you were making orgasm noises. Because <laughs> I was watching it. Oh, 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 yeah. Like this, I was 
out loud in the theater. I just think that it's, and you know, I, I love those. It has those crowd pleasing moments, but it also has this philosophy and all this psychology yeah. that goes on. It's just, I don't know. This, the psychology is always there and it kind of fades off. But I think, especially with Dunkirk, I think Nolan's become like a great action director and he's, he's honing his craft. And it's, it's fascinating watching him from that standpoint. I, uh, I, I, I yeah. I agree with pretty much everything you said. I I, I love the the bat pod is the best vehicle of these of this trilogy. Uh, so when it comes out and the little computer voice is like goodbye and it yeah. pops out and then Rick and then after the the truck flip you know goes underneath and it does like I said earlier like ricochets off the wall that was like a cheer moment in mm-hmm. theaters, yeah. for sure. Uh, and I think I he's so much better at the chase stuff than he is at the hand to hand combat. I think that's where his flaws as an action director at this point in his career really kind of stand out in the first one. It's just kind of like back and forth and sort of supposed to be disorienting because, you know, uh, these criminals are like, what's going on? What is this creature attacking us? Yeah. And then here he sort of hides behind the, uh, the micro, uh, not the microwave, uh, wrong device, the sonar thing yeah. in this movie where it kind of cuts to POV of like the, the Joker kind of coming at, you know, uh, right. at his mask or whatever. Like he, he kind of quick cuts back and forth to all of that stuff and, and kind of hides the seams a little bit that way, which, whereas, as you were saying, the dark Knight rises, a lot of that is a, it's way more fluid. Yeah. Uh, I, probably one of the only ways for me that that's the superior film right. of these three, honestly. <laughs> uh, right. so, so yeah, there, there is that the track throughout the trilogy, but no, that's, that's a, that's a good point. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Um, if there's nothing else, is there <laughs> anything else that you well, want to get into now? Or are we gonna... I'm, I, I'm so sorry. I, I'm so sorry. This this, is no, no, no. It's good. So hey, it's been, it takes two to podcast for right. two hours. It's not just and you. I could go on and on about this. I just, I just think this movie is so well put together, and it's, it's Nolan working at the top of his game, and just I, I like watching the behind the scenes stuff because I know we're kind of down on Nolan now for what he said about uh, you know film versus digital and like releasing Tenet, which is not a good movie, <laughs> especially coming Honestly, up in Dunkirk. I still haven't seen it all the way through. I watched okay, part I of it once before, and I was, and I, I was, I had a headache. I don't think it's because I don't know if it's because of the movie, but it, because I was, I think it was like just like a you know a posture headache or whatever like i and it, it was not yeah yeah and then, and i got through half of it and i was like this is not a movie to watch when i have a headache yeah. uh, and i just haven't gotten back to it right. because well, i'm like i've heard enough about it i'm like i get it it's yeah i get it well like i said it's interesting seeing him and in, in nolan in interviews now and just you know like being nostalgic about back in those times where it's like, yeah, Christopher Nolan, we all loved any, right. we laughed up anything you said back then. And you were just a God to us back then. But now it's like, yeah. Ugh, this guy again, you know what I mean? <laughs> he said that one. I hope he comes back, but it's just, you know, we could talk about that. We could talk about anything. It's just, yeah, I don't know. I just, I love the dichotomy in this movie. I love how Joker pushes, you know, it's the nine 11 kind of stuff ties in the Patriot act comes in. It's yeah. like Batman pushing that level again. It's like, you're, this is wrong. Like, like Lucia says, like all that stuff. It's like everybody being pushed past their level because Joker is trying to bring out the evils and everybody. It's just, there's, there's so many things you could pull out. We could talk for another three hours about this. Robert. We, can, we <laughs> could find other things, but like that's going to be exciting for us, but boring to everybody else. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, there were notes along the way there. I'm like, uh, that's not, we, we don't have yeah, time I, for that. Oh, <laughs> but yeah, but thank you so much, Darren, for coming on oh the show and, and spending all this time talking about The Dark Knight. I'm glad we were finally able to do this. We'll have to do a follow-up when you watch The Batman because I okay. <laughs> eventually you will. and you'll Eventually, I'm, I'm not against it. I, I will get, I just, 
Maybe before the sequel, you'll be like, damn it. I guess I have to. Whatever that is. You have a couple years. (laughs) Um, Tell people where they can find you and Nostalgia Cast on social media. Okay. Well, again, if you, I'm only on Twitter. So if you go to at DW Lundberg, you'll see a picture of, again, Kevin Coster and Field of Dreams. It's my uh, uh, avatar there. And uh, Nostalgia Cast, we just, like we talked about earlier, is just take these movies that we loved as kids and we're looking them now to, again, see if we're approaching them differently as adults. Um, some movies can be Forrest Gump, where you look at them and they're completely different from what you remember. Other movies can be The Dark Knight, where it's just as good, if not better, than and so that's we yep. love having those conversations like we talked about we've got a lot of exciting guests that we still haven't uh you know aired our episodes with them yet it's we're just having a great time and like you said robert it's the 90s is where you cut your teeth we're finding a lot more people getting involved now because it seems like the 90s is where a lot of people <laughs> that i know and that i've met on twitter that's where their heart lies so it's just if you want to talk 90s movies just come over and we'd love to interact with you uh, at dw lemberg nostalgia cast is the podcast name and we're having a great time. I hope you have a great time with us. Awesome. Thanks, Darren. And we will definitely get you, and it's undetermined which one, but we'll definitely get you here for the <laughs> X-Men uh, mega series. There's plenty of slots to fill there. Right. So uh, we'll, we will have to, we'll have to talk more superhero sequels then. <laughs> I'd love it again. I, I cannot express to you how grateful I am to be able to talk The Dark Knight. And it's, it's the... One of the top comic book movies, not the comic book movie, like that everybody kind of compares themselves to. Just being able to talk about this movie with with you, it's just especially sandwiched between your your esteemed guests and you talking about the other. I'm I'm so grateful and and uh, for you as a friend and the opportunity to be able to do this. Big thanks to Darren Lundberg from Nostalgia Cast for coming on to discuss 2008's The Dark Knight. Obviously, the highest profile and most iconic of these three films. So. Uh, it's, it'll be interesting to see how the ranking shakes out at the end of the next episode. So let me know what your thoughts are on The Dark Knight. Does it still hold up 14 years after its theatrical debut? You can find me on Twitter so far at Crooked Table, the same handle on Instagram via email at robert at crookedtable.com. I'm also on Tumblr, which I've now dusted off for the first time in ages, and I'm now quasi-posting regularly. Uh, you, so you can check that out there. And we'll be back next episode to conclude the Dark Knight trilogy mega series with The Dark Knight Rises. So stay tuned for that. Until then, that's a wrap on another Crooked Table production. See you at the next stop, everyone. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. Z-R-O-L-K-E-D. Z-R-O-L-K-E-D. <laughs> <laughs>